VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the Come On With It edition of Open Line for this nice-looking Friday here in the city of St. John. So, if you're in the metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 86. 26, so let's check in on the Breen's Jubilee Trophy, the Provincial Senior Women's Championship Soccer Tournament. The finals are set. The championship game goes on Sunday at noon at King George V. It'll be Holy Cross taking on the Felians. And then the third place game is going to take place Saturday, once again, at King George V. Uh, Paradise taking on St. John's. Uh, talk about the Jubilee Trophy All-Stars. In the net, Sydney Walsh. For the fullbacks, Keisha Young, Clara Malloy, Jamie King, and Morgan Harris. In the midfielders is Brianna Pender, Kristen Jenkins, Terry Murphy, and Katie Montevecchi. And up front, the strikers are, that are all-stars are Jane Pope and Claire Longuil. Jane Pope is also the MVP. The Challenge Cup gets going tonight out in CBS. Is it CBS? Yes, in CBS. So the tops will turf right there in CBS. 6 o'clock, Holy Cross takes on Paradise. That's the 1 versus 4 matchup. 8.30, after they do some awards, it's the Felians and the, so the Paris Optical Strikers, FC Football Club. All right, good luck to all hands. Churchill Park Music Festival kicks off tonight with the so-called Kitchen Party. Great lineup. And we had a call yesterday from a Churchill Park resident. Not about the noise, not about the music and the lights. It's about the aftermath of the concerts. She painted a pretty gross picture about how some concert goers were behaving as they walked away from the concert grounds to wherever they were going, using the side of her home as a urinal and all the rest, if you heard the call. So for the Churchill Park music goers this weekend, next weekend, you know, it's in a residential area. Enjoy the show. I'm going next weekend. I can't wait. But maybe, just maybe, get a little bit more consideration for the locals as you make your way out of the area. All right, and in the world of music, curious note, born on this date, uh, 114 years ago in 1909, Leo Fender, the inventor of the Telecaster electric guitar, the first mass-produced electric guitar, was born. So in uh, 1954, his Stratocaster became the world's most iconic electric guitar. The precision bass, also from the Fender Group, set the standard for electric bass guitars. That was a pretty great story, Leo Fender. And a quick baseball note. On this date in 1929, Babe Booth became the first baseball player to hit 500 career home runs, playing in Cleveland. A local boy got 20 bucks on an autograph from the Bambino himself for returning the ball that was hit right out of the park onto Lexington Avenue. First 500 home run hitter, the Bambino, Babe Ruth. All right, good news for Growlers hockey fans. One of the fan favorites is returning for yet another season with the club, Todd Skirving. He's been there since the beginning, the Kelly Cup year. He is second in games played for the team. Had a good season last year, 31 goals. He's excited to come back and they kick off their season on the 20th of October at Mary Brown Center when the Reading Royals come to town. Skirving coming back. Sticking with the bit of, uh, I guess, athletics activity. So I don't know if you've been on the bike trail in, on the White Hills. 17 kilometers, pretty great stuff. They saw a huge uptick during the pandemic of the number of people on their bike and using that trail. Consequently, it's a volunteer-run group, and the trails were getting beat up pretty good. Now the federal government has pretty much said cease and desist. Pump the brakes on any planned expansion of that trail network. It's actually owned by the federal government, overseen by the Public Services and Procurement Canada. It's right there behind the DFO building. So now the volunteers... 
are going to focus in on maintenance and make sure it's as good as possible. I've been on it once. It's pretty cool. And the people who have you know, been kickstarting this, Chris Jarrett and others, they've done fabulous work up there. Many people don't even know it exists, but the feds have said, hey, time to pump the brakes. Now, they say they don't need the land, the federal government that is, so maybe just maybe there's an opportunity for this group to pick it up and buy it off the federal government or some sort of transaction between the feds and the Avalon Mountain Bike Association. If Chris or anybody uh, involved with that trail network is interested in getting on the show, paint us a picture of what you're offering on the White Hills and what the plans are for maintenance and any conversations with the feds about taking over that piece of land that the feds say they don't need. Anyway, good story. Let's keep going. So yet another story. Here we are about a month away from the beginning of the school year, or I guess the fall semester at Memorial University. And every year it's the same thing. So it's people looking for housing. We've been talking about housing a lot because it's a massive concern. So the international students in particular, that's the focus of this one news story I read this morning. We've talked about and tried to explore the possibility to reinstate the home share program that was once in place at Memorial University and has gone by the wayside. We've actually had home share organizations on this show. We've talked to someone from Simon Fraser University, someone who has a new app running in the province of Nova Scotia. And the concept is really quite simple. So an international student who is vetted by the university is paired with someone in the community to get low-cost rent, to take a room at that senior, in particular a senior's home, and, you know, take on some of the household chores. So everybody wins. Mun wins, the student wins, and the senior wins. So just imagine the relief you get with an international student that you might indeed form a bond with, some money coming in the door, no longer struggling to shovel the steps or paint the fence or get the whippersnipper going, whatever the household duties are that have been agreed upon. So I just wonder how and why that isn't part and parcel with how the university either attracts and or accommodates students, and in this case, international students. So I wonder why that's not in place. What do you think? Also, we spoke with the Association for New Canadians some while back, a new program they're offering, asking families with a $1,000 a month stipend for uh, the time of five months to take in a Ukrainian family while they explore the uh, hope of finding a place of their own. I don't know what the uptake has been. Maybe we'll get an update from the ANC. But if you have indeed been one of those families and you want to talk about your experience, let's do exactly that. All right, stick with housing for a second. Look, the federal government is not necessarily technically wrong, the federal liberal government, when they say it's not their direct carriage. They're not responsible for housing. Well, fair enough, technically true. But some federal government policies have led to a real crunch in the housing world. So if there's a requirement, given the current pace of housing starts, the country is going to need to see 5.8 million, 5.8 million new homes by just 2030. I mean, through the first two quarters of this year, 62,000 housing starts. So <laughs> we are way, way, way behind. So when the feds, and I think this is a political miscalculation because you know the way the world works. Even though in the world of civics, there is some confusion between the responsibility or jurisdiction or authority of the municipalities versus the province versus the federal government. So the feds really just cannot shrug their shoulders on this one. You know, when we have the first minister's meetings, the country's premiers get together, and, you know, healthcare dominates that conversation. It's really time for a national roundtable with some absolute guidance from the federal government and contribution to building these homes between, say, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, the premiers, 
the prime minister and the ministers responsible, whether it be in immigration or Sean Fraser and housing, because yes, it may indeed simply be a federal, uh, provincial and municipal matter, but they're simply not good enough. So the feds will talk about the amount of money they've spent to build homes over the last number of years, but the federal government really did walk away from being involved directly in housing whether it be affordable housing or otherwise, has been some money announced in the recent past for affordable housing units, some 1,500 in this province alone. But if you, you just take the numbers, requirement of 5.8 million new homes in the next seven years, we're going to need to build more homes in the next 10 years than we built in the last 50. We don't even have the skilled traits to do it. I know costs are exorbitant. There are some NIMBY issues that municipalities are going to have to grapple with. But it is time, and I, uh, once again, they can say whatever they want about jurisdictional authority, but it's a political miscalculation. It just truly is. Because all of these pressures, they generally flow uphill. It's easy enough for people to think that the feds are directly responsible and owe us some answers about the housing crisis. And I think you're right. I think they do. And in the world of rentals, uh, someone has asked me to mention this, and I didn't for the last couple of days. No reason, just kind of forgot. Even in the world of rentals, you know, we see stories coming from the animal rescue or the shelters, and they have seen a massive number of unwanted pets coming in the door. And we know during the pandemic, people did indeed bring pets into their home for company. So whether it be now that they don't, can't afford the pet any longer, or they simply don't want the pet any longer, and yes, the amount of rental units available that are pet friendly. You know, it's up to the landlord at this time in this province about whether or not you want to rent to someone who has a, a dog, for instance. In Ontario, there's a law banning landlords from refusing rentals to pet owners. So, look, I get it. If you're a landlord, you know, there can be some complications with having an animal as part of the rental family. But there's lots of good pet owners out there who would very likely treat their rental unit, hopefully, like it's their own. Now, there's bad renters. We all know the stories. We hear them all the time. But when the lack of pet-friendly rentals has also contributed to the amount of unwanted pets, it's really quite a sad story you're hearing from these animal rescue groups. Anyway, you want to talk about that? Let's go. Big story yesterday. And I think it started a month or so ago when we heard from the RCMP that there was an enormous number of vacancies in that law enforcement agency, more vacancies per capita than any other province in the country. I believe at that time the number was 18 vacancies. That story has now developed really quickly. So what we see is whether on Fogo, they had three permanent officers, now there's going to be one part-time coming from the Gander detachment. They had a big rally yesterday to talk about it. If you're a Fogo resident, you're welcome to come on. And you know, it's not just about the severe crimes. It's even I heard from a resident talking about, you know, speeders and drunk drivers. And yes, when people know there's not a cop around, then they'll make some bad decisions, either purposefully or based on whatever problems they've got. But this story has now gone to see the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary expanding their footprint on the West Coast. They're already on the West Coast, but now they're going to expand it even further, taking on different communities all the way down to Pasadena. We're hoping to get Mayor Jim Parsons from Cornerbrook on the show, because in this province, if we've seen a shrinking presence of the RCMP, and we talk about crime hopefully fundamentally, not in a sensationalized way, if there's no new monies coming for police in the upcoming budgets, then how is this going to work? So there's going to be some transition costs for the RNC, including vehicles, for instance, and other nuts and bolts. But 
the province has reported back that, you know, the RCMP's budget boosted by $17 million a few years ago, even though it's shrinking presence of the RCMP. RNC allocation went up by a million dollars last year. Part of that went to 12, uh, 10 new officer positions. But the questions would be, if we're not hiring more police officers, how are they going to adequately police these new expanded areas? It's a big question, and I don't know if anyone's got any answers. Now, the RNC's association, the union representing the members, they say that this is an exciting time for them, that it may indeed see an increase in recruitment and possibly more police on the force. But if there's no money for them, then how is that going to be accommodated? So the RNC are stretched pretty thin, as far as I can tell. Whether it be in the metro region or wherever else the RNC has a detachment, the stories have been clear, is that there is a really stretched thin law enforcement agency. So now with the expansion, I'm not really sure how this is going to work. You know, hopefully Mayor Parsons will come on because there is an RNC detachment right here, there in his city. So what's the thought? That if we add, say, a minimal number of new RNC officers, how will that accommodate the different communities that they're now going to be in charge of? Whether it be through the Bay of Islands, Massey Drive, the Humber Valley's far east as Pasadena. It's a interesting story. And talking about crime index, these are not anecdotal evidence pieces. We've heard from the Crown Prosecutor's Office. We've heard from Stats Canada, and it's quite clear. The crime severity index for this province has gone up by 6% year over year. The crime rate for Metro specifically has gone up by 19%. So how does this work realistically? It's one thing to announce it, another thing to add the details so that it can be done properly for the safety of all hands where the RNC will now have a presence. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Yeah, let's get going. Happy 50th anniversary to the folks out at Grossmore National Park. We've had some conversations with Parks Canada recently, accessibility issues going to Western Brook Pond and otherwise, and Parks Canada handled that issue quite gracefully. Apologize for miscommunication, taking a, gr a greater focused look at accessibility issues in all the national parks. The importance of Grossmore as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, I don't imagine we have real firm numbers about how many visitors to the province came because of Grossmore or while they were here went to Grossmore, but everyone in the province who's ever been there, you know it's a real gem. So 50th anniversary out of the park, terrific stuff, uh, very quickly. Talk about cruel irony. It was just yesterday. We were talking about this is the sixth annual safety stand down, representing a bunch of groups, construction, trades NL, uh, the Heavy Civil Association, all the way through. And today is a day to focus on safety. And of course, yesterday we found out horrible loss out at Hollywood. No real details as to what happened, but a long-term employee is dead in a serious workplace incident. And you'll hear the rumors about electrocuted out in the switchyard, and I don't know, but the big issue here is a man is dead, and our condolences to his family. You know, I suppose every day, and some of the messages we hear from like Workplace and Ellen and others, is the want to come home safe at the end of each workday. You know, people work in some very high-risk areas, and, of course, Holyrood and other industrial and commercial sites would be exactly that. So it's a bit too common a story, people getting hurt on the job, and tragedies like yesterday are unbelievable. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. And for those of you who have emailed in the last couple of days about disability benefits, Overnight, look, I'm happy to share the links because it was a great call from Fraser Pickett earlier in the week to talk about the benefits and the tax credits and all the different moving parts and implications. If you haven't heard back from me yet, 
with the disability links. I'm going to sift through them and pick away at them over the course of the day. There was dozens came in overnight, so I'll get to them as quick as I possibly can, but I'll try to attend to all of those today before I go home. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to Disabilities Advocate, Craig Reed. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Pretty good. Um, I had to bring something to your attention and the public's attention uh, that's been troubling me for quite a few years. Um, as my past tenure, I couldn't get into it with government about it because they would have held my position and not the organization I believe I was with. Um, in some disregard. So now that I've been away from the organization for about a, over a year now, um, I've finally been able to talk about this. A few months ago, I had to put in a formal complaint to the Auditor General about $134 million of misappropriation of funds from the Liberal government. Now, in 2021 budget, the Liberal Party announced $120 plus million dollars in core funding for community-based organizations during the COVID crisis. And it went on to talk about a great deal about how it was core funding and only core funding. And if I'm not mistaken, there was federal money in there tied in as well. Well, I thought to myself, what a brilliant idea. Now, this is going to positively impact our community-based organizations from our sports right on up through our disability community. Um, and I was waiting for people to be calling in to you to say, what a wonderful deal this was, how great it impacted them, and nothing happened. So I said, this is not right. So I wanted to find out exactly how the money was spent in great detail, who got what. And I put in an A-tip request and was shocked, absolutely shocked, to find out that there was zero, zero funds delivered as core funding. Now, I know there are zero dollars delivered as core funding because our finance minister doesn't have a criteria-based application base to be able to apply for core funding. What they give away are grants, then they have application-based, then they have program funding, and then they have multi-year funding. All these things have different definitions because they're different things. Government would have you believe that grants are the same as core funding. They're not. Core funding covers the administration costs of any NGO to be able to keep the doors open. It doesn't cover the cost of programs at all. It covers what the core funding of the organization is so they don't have to panic when it comes to rent or anything else. The core staff that's there to keep the doors open. They haven't done that. So all the funds they go ahead, sorry. What I was going to ask is so if there's a distinction between core funding and grants, fair enough, you worked in that arena. Do you know if the money that was earmarked for whatever, grants or core funding, do we know where the money is? Has it all been spent in one form or another? Oh yes, it's one hundred percent been spent. Okay. Government actually pulled back the majority of that money to pay for government programming. This would include road work. A million dollars and millions of dollars in roadworks here in the city or the province as well as up in Labrador. Um, it's, it's amazing how much money was pulled back, and it's for application-based. And here's the kicker about when you're talking about application-based. When you're talking about core funding for community-based organizations, um, government has a tendency to say, we're not going to give you core funding. We're going to give you a little small grant. That's not even come close 
covering what you would need for core funding to keep your doors open. But then they say, oh, but by the way, we have some work that you can do for us. This is from the money they held back for programming. So to take the money that was supposed to be delivered, all these funds were supposed to be delivered in core funding, pulling it back for application-based program, which is a kick because now they're saying, do work for us and we'll give you more money to make up the deficit that we uh, created, which is basically an obligated labor force because any NGO knows that they have to keep the doors open. That's the number one rule. If you can't keep your doors open, you can't provide your services to anybody. So government knows this, and they've been doing this for, oh, it's tragic how long they do it. Patty, if if I sent you the document, I hope, I pray to God you can put it up so people can actually discern the information themselves. I can tell you the Auditor General is going to be into this at the beginning of the new year, 100%. So they're excited to get at this. They were like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe what's going on here. Well, we're talking we're about $134 million. It's not, uh, it's not chump change. So just so I can help wrap my mind around how to speak with the Auditor General on this issue, how to ask questions of the government about how, where the money was spent and how it was initially earmarked or promised to be spent. So if the money has gone out the door, you're primary concern is it, the distinction between the grant money for a very specific project or what have you versus core funding. So is the thought or the assertion that with core funding not being the home for that $134 million, some of the long-term needs have not been attended to? Or how, how sh- if you had the minister responsible, whatever minister on this program right now that you had his ear, what's the first question? Well, the minister I would ask for would be the premier. Well, fair enough. Well, let's just say it's the Premier. So, The Premier's aware of this. I've had meetings with the Premier. He's aware of it. The Finance Minister is aware of she has no criteria-based application process, and she still continues to do the same thing today after this was brought to her attention years ago. This is not a joke. These people are seriously clipping the heels out of the people who are trying to help our province the most. Social programming has gone downhill for, the, for decades, if you were to call any of the community-based organizations to represent persons with disabilities and ask them if they receive core funding, every one of them would tell you no. If you call anybody in that list and ask them if they receive core funding, they'll say no. Multi-year funding is not core funding. Multi-year funding is a funding where, for example, uh, if, if an organization needs $150,000 to meet the core funding needs, Government will give you multi-year funding for $34,000, but then offer, you can do some work for us. This is the kind of stuff they do, and it is reprehensible the manner in which they're doing it. And and they're spending money that has nothing to do with community-based organizations. The money, the vast majority of it, over 60% of it, was not delivered in any way, shape, or form to community-based organizations at all. And what Again, was delivered was delivered in grants. Right. I, I saw the spreadsheet, and of course, numbers are numbers. But it's you know some of the different policies or projects that not did not get attended to because all our input costs for whatever you're doing in this world have gone up, and if core funding hasn't been. Uh, attended to as it was supposed to be inside this envelope of $134 million. I think you mentioned a couple of specific projects, but I want to be as informed as possible here so that I can speak to those who are responsible. What types of things have not been done because of the way this money was spent? 
Give me some examples so that I can wrap my mind around it, go to those organizations, and then consequently follow up with the province. It, the organizations are all struggling to find what they need to be able to keep their doors open. The reason that is is because government hasn't delivered core funding. If they had delivered core funding or took that $134 million as it was intended to be used, core funding, organizations would find themselves with a firm footing to stand on. The Myra Green report determined right off the bat, the same as they do in the UK, community-based organizations have to be supported. We're the ones that can do it correctly. I'm going to give you an example of this. Government has a... Um, a program for disabilities called Open, Opening Doors, I believe it's called. Is that it? It's called Open Doors, I think, yeah. Open Doors, okay. Every year, they place, on average, and their job is to place persons with disabilities in work environments and some other things, resume building and all that. Um, every year, they place, on average, three people per year. Empower Autism Society and many other organizations average 50 placements per year. So it seems to me that the disability community have a much better idea of how to do the job than government does. Of course. If government are willing to fund a complete office and program to run this, at what cost, I don't know. It would only take an eight to put it in there. But it seems to me a pretty defunct thing. But government, again, has the worst hiring record in the province when it comes to disabilities. So it, wouldn't, it, it doesn't surprise me that they only place three persons per year on average. That's that's pathetic. Like, I wonder, I sit there and wonder, what do they do all day? So it, it, it bothers me when I see so many, so many millions of dollars pulled back for application base because I know that it's government's means to get free work done. Now, they're going to argue with you and talk semantics, but the reality is that's it. They've created an obligated labor force. Our finance minister has no interest in doing anything different. This is still going on since 2021. If you, if I were to put in an ATIP request for 2022-23, 2021-22, you would find that exactly the same process has happened. No funds, zero have been delivered in core funding. No organization is ensured they're going to be able to keep their doors open. They're always scrambling. They're always trying to find more funding to be able to, to cover off the basic core expenses. Now, I don't know why our premier has put the Mario Green on the report on, on a shelf and let it kick, get dust uh, when it was probably one of the most brilliant things written um, for this province at no cost, my God. It, it, it frustrates me, Patty. So, like I say, I, I seriously had to put in a complaint to the Auditor General. And if you're talking to the Auditor General, ask her, you know, they're not going to be able to talk to it to me. They told me that once it's in, it's in, and they're going to be doing it at the beginning of the new year. But grants, or funding, application-based programs, multi-year, all different things, and none of it. None of the $134 million was delivered in core funding. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to grab your email again here now and give it some more thought over the weekend and try to organize some time with those who I need to speak with about it, Craig. But uh, I'm glad you're speaking up about it. We're talking about some pretty serious issues here. And we well, know things matter. were – I'll, I'll get – last word to you. Go ahead. 
it's, it's a massive issue. When you're Every year, you're reducing the amount of funding that's going to these community-based organizations, and the demands on these community-based organizations are growing annually. Listen, if these organizations are to shut down, government can't handle it. They wouldn't be able to deal with it. They don't have the resources. They don't have the people, and it'll cost ten times as much to do what they're doing. So I have no understanding of how government could be so obtuse to the fact that this is fundamental to our province. Disabilities now stand at 30% of our province, Patty, not 25%. That's statistics over five years old. 30% of our province has disabilities, and that impacts our families as well. So when we're talking about one of the biggest and the biggest growing demographic are seniors when it comes to disabilities, and it's all about accessibility and being able to provide that kind of stuff for them. But my God, if, if we're not providing the basics of core funding to our community-based organizations, what are we doing as a province? Our government are more into, they're not stewards of our money at all, and it's our money, not theirs. They're handling it as poorly as anybody could. I and, appreciate and the time and the info, Craig. I'm off to the break, but I will grab that email and send it to my personal account for some more thought over the weekend. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Patty. Cheers, man. Take care. All right. Bye. All right, uh, let's see here. We were talking about the 17 kilometers of bike trail in behind the DFO building on the White Hills and the whole pump the brakes or cease and desist. Chris Jarrett is there. He's the owner of Free Ride Mountain Sports here in the city of St. John's. He was one of the leads on the volunteer movement to develop that trail some years back. We'll speak with Chris. Wayne wants to talk about the conflict in Ukraine. Then the body safety program, which, of course, we've talked about repeatedly, but it's worth keeping on the front burner. That and more right after this. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Chris Jarrett. He's the owner of Free Ride Mountain Sports here in the city of St. John's. And good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very good. So this is kind of a confusing story. I mean, you and a bunch yep. of volunteers went to cut this trail some years back. It's seen a huge yep. uptick in usage, especially uh, throughout the pandemic. And now kind of out of nowhere for me, or maybe it wasn't out of nowhere for you guys, the federal government says, stop any further expansion. Did they give you any rationale, or did they just now figure out that the trail was there? Yeah, well, let's just go back a little bit sure. uh, and uh, talk about where how we got started, just, to, just as a point of reference here. Um, I guess about 25 years ago, there, there was a lot of trails up there. The military used it for training and stuff like that. There was trails connecting old radar sites when it was part of the, you know, the defense uh, of North America, the Pine Tree Line. And we, back when mountain bike, it was a little primitive. We just started riding these trails, and then we started raking them. Then we started developing them. And then we did some development on a parcel of private land, a little more advanced development. Um, and throughout the year, the, throughout the last five years, since the forming of a, a, an a AMBA, Avalon Mountain Bike Association, uh, we've been working to formalize the trail system, and we've been moving forward with it pretty good. You know, we've had a little bit of a working relationship with them. They allowed us to run um, uh, mountain bike events there, two enduro races uh, per season. And uh, so, you know, we've... 
just over the years, it's been going good, but we still do not have a formal agreement with them. Uh, PSPC does not have a, a mechanism for for forming uh, for land use like this. So this is where the complication arises. So I think uh, at the beginning of this year, I think they were doing some surveying up there, maybe some wildlife surveying. Uh, this is this is not from them. They haven't told us, given us much information about it. But uh, they put, uh, we were just putting the finishing touches on a brand new trail, a trail designed to include pretty much every mountain biker from, uh, you know, a 10-year-old uh, child to, uh, you know, a, a told beginner. So this trail was uh, a big step for us. Uh, we we were just about to finish it off, and they contacted AMBA, um, and uh, put uh, put put a hold on this till we till we get to a fir- till we get to a better point. So, I think in the long run, in the big picture, it uh, it might be a little bit better for to to get to that next level for for the working relationship. So, I think that probably is what people are are wanting to hear to put put themselves at ease because, like you did say, it is a massive uh, area that is used by a variety of people, mountain bikers, runners, hikers, dog walkers, and not everybody enjoys it to the to a high level. So we don't really, we, we definitely don't want to jeopardize it. Give us some idea of usage. You know, back when you and the volunteers began to massage the land, cut the trails, and then through the pandemic, we know for sure there was a lot more people getting out on bicycles. What does usage look like from when when you began through the pandemic? Do you have any real ballpark about how many people use that trail network today? Uh, we do. We got some pretty good stats. I mean, through using bike uh, ride apps and stuff like that. Uh, it's. I would think there's over 2,000 users there annually, and uh, a lot of users are repeat, like, you know, some as many as seven seven days a week, uh, five days a week. So, and on the weekends, it's very, very busy. Uh, the races, we attract as much as 120 people, uh, several hundred spectators. It's, it's a very popular place. There's not adequate parking. There's not adequate signage. Uh, the municipality St. John's needs to get a little bit more involved with this as well. Uh, I mean, mountain biking is a big sport. It's a big, it's a, it's a huge activity, off-road, uh, running, hiking, everything like that. I don't, me personally, I don't think we're adequately, uh, um, uh, we don't have the adequate, uh, infrastructure in, in St. John's in comparison to, other Atlantic Canada areas, or definitely not Canada. You know, I just I just returned from uh, Quebec, where I was doing some mountain biking. You know, like an hour outside of Montreal, a place called Bromont. It's it, the, the 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 contrast is just it's it's really it's crazy. And uh, how much revenue and 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 good health you see in these areas is. Uh, it, it's so important and it's such a great asset that we built there that uh, it could just it's just uh it just needs that extra support and we are getting it i will say that you know like uh our mp has been involved uh, uh with it a lot she's been she's been meeting with uh with uh, public works helping us along the way the federal minister responsible for public works was uh, visited and uh uh, you know, we had a meeting with her as well. So, I mean, we're working along, but it's a slow process with the federal government. 
always is. I mean, is the yeah. thought that there might be an opportunity? If, if the federal government says that they don't really need that land, they have no use for that land, is there an opportunity to further conversation about some sort of land transfer or the ability for your group to buy it? Is any of that on the uh, front burner? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there was some talk. I mean, uh, probably the the, per- the main person that's been dealing with that is uh, Adam Churchill, and uh, you probably might want to get him on the line, so probably at some point. But, yeah, there is there is uh, communication about that. I don't know if the federal government actually even needs the land. I don't even know the, how they came to obtain that land. It's kind of kind of a, a, a kind of a strange backstory about that um they had talked about some new development there but i don't i don't know if that's even a, a thing uh, a big portion of it belong is is in private land we're we're enabled to uh, uh use that trail but the potential there for that is massive like there the the tourism uh potential is is giant uh, we at my bike shop we do see an increase in um, tourists coming. We do offer rentals now. Uh, yeah, and this is without any marketing, any type of promotion other than posting on social media and stuff like this. So, I mean, yeah, the opportunity is huge because Newfoundland has a unique, um, you know, has a unique landscape that no one else really has. So we have trails near the ocean, stuff like this, that people, people that are in mountain biking want these experiences. So, the, the the city has been involved, but I mean it's you know St. John's is a not a small municipality. It it uh, you know has a lot of other things uh, that it has to work out too. But I mean this is an opportunity for St. John's too. Hundred percent. And having lived in Western Canada, these types of trail networks are absolutely everywhere. Not just in remote yeah. parks like Jasper and Banff. I mean, in the city yeah. proper,s these types of trail networks are are absolutely commonplace. Uh, Chris, good to have you on the show. Appreciate you making time. Yep, sure thing. No problem, Patty. Stay in touch. Take care. As Chris Jarrett, he's the owner of Freeride Mountain Sports, and that trail network is pretty extensive. And be. Be curious to see where that conversation goes with the feds. Let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay, Wayne. How about you? Number one, Patty, boy, top shelf as usual. That's what I like to hear. Yes, that's great and good to hear you're up there alongside of me. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Anyway, I just want to uh, express a little bit of concern, I guess, about what's going on in in Ukraine and the... uh, brutality, inhumanity, and illegality the Russian nation is on clear display there. And if this is the way that uh, the Russians choose to settle their issues, I'm afraid the world is in a long period of grave danger with them. And I think it's about time now for the civilized world to unite and, and impress upon that country the need to immediately cease the hostilities and withdraw their presence from Ukraine. It all sounds right, doesn't it? But, you know, even if you just talk about members of NATO and the billions and billions of dollars in hardware and uh, humanitarian support, I mean, it hasn't put one bit of uh, stop uh, 
in the minds of Putin or whoever else belongs to this Russian aggression. So that's the big question for me is I try to follow along, but I think it's a real tricky piece of business to try to dig in to know exactly the veracity or the accuracy of some of the things we hear. I mean, there's not much of a free media presence in the country. Some of the headlines get pretty torqued by the time they make it to our ears and eyeballs. So the biggest question is, where's the peaceful off-ramp? I have no earthly idea. I mean, some of the commentary you hear about, it's actually America's fault or it's NATO's fault or, you know, we, we should just appease him and give him what he wants and that him being Putin. But I don't know where this stops or how it stops. I really don't know. You know, if there's going to be continued conversation with the expansion of NATO and possibly even the inclusion of Ukraine and all the issues regarding Article 5 and up and down the line, this is something that's way over my head about how the world finds a way out. Well, we had to find a way out because there is no way of appeasing people like Putin. We've had that experience uh, before in, uh, in Germany, so appeasement is not an option. I wouldn't think so. The only so. option here really is for the world to unite against this kind of aggression and, uh, and insist that the Russian nation return all their war machinery to their own territory and keep it there. And every other nation ought to do likewise, to keep their war machines at home. The world has got enough challenges now with climate change. We don't need more war. That's the last thing we need right now. And uh, until this is settled, and, and we're, we're in for a long uh, period of, of distress, I'm afraid. But somehow this has got to be brought to an end as quickly as possible because it will only go beyond Ukraine into Poland and, and the rest of Europe. Putin has no, no appetite for, for stopping until he's confronted with something that leaves no other alternative. And as far as NATO's concerned, they started this as a bunch of, as far as I'm concerned, they should have bulked up at the get-go when when uh, Russia started to take over parts of Ukraine and let them know what the options were from there. Instead of that, they stood around and now we have what we have. We have a damn mess. A lot of dead Ukrainians, a destroyed, virtually destroyed, peaceful nation. This is not the way to settle differences. And we had to, we had to sort it out. And the world, the civilized world, has to unite against this kind of activity. I, I don't think Vladimir Putin gives one hoot about someone insisting he do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, we're also talking about a nuclear power that if the world thinks that Putin, if backed into a corner, that's not above him, then, or below him, I suppose the right way to say it, then I really don't know how the intervention should have looked at the beginning. I have no idea what the post-war looks like or the way to end this conflict. The world wasn't ready for a Russian-led, uh, Putin-led Russia, and I guarantee it's not ready for the next chapter, or whatever that may be. It's scary stuff. I try to keep an eye on it, but it's pretty devastating, and I will stand by the fact that I think it's really, really difficult to get really accurate accurate information. Again, the way that it's been covered has been very political. And if you back politics out of conflict and the actual what's happening to both sides and human beings, we're not really getting a whole lot of coverage that I think I can trust because I can see one story on one thread of my social media page and I can scroll down and get a story that contradicts it in full. So I'm not even sure what to think because I'm not sure what to believe. Uh, Wayne, it's good to have you on. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say before we go? 
Uh, Patty, I don't follow social media. I found it uh, to be money, not much more than a garbage heap, so I don't uh, look there for anything that uh, you can uh, trust anyway. So no advice to you. You can do as you please. I just do not have any confidence in accuracy of information on social media. Anyway, well, Patty, yeah. have a good day, and uh, we hope there's a way out of this mess because if there isn't, there will be more in Europe for the next 50 years, and that'll be beyond my lifespan, I'm afraid to say. Anyway, you have a good day, and uh, we'll pick you up some other time on some other issues. Thanks, Wayne. Okay. Have a nice weekend. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, do I owe us a break here, Dave? (laughs) Okay, let's do that. Food, banks, body safety, and then you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Bev Moore Davis. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I just wanted to talk about the body safety program again. Um, I wanted to do a little update for you. Uh, in May, May 24th, in fact, we launched a website called Body Safety NL, and it was basically to educate people about the need, the desperate need for body safety in our schools as well as uh, gain some support. So since that time, um, it's only been not quite three months, we've had numerous messages and meetings with different people, and I'd, I'd like to talk about that with you because some of it I have found pretty disturbing. Um, I'm just going to talk about some of the cases, Patty. Um, about a week after the page was launched, I was sitting in on a meeting when somebody asked, an acquaintance that I didn't really know very well, asked if she could talk to me privately after the meeting. And during that time, she disclosed that a member of her family, a 17-year-old girl, had been sexually abused for uh, 10 years, from age 7 to 17, by an older family friend. But because the parents were such close friends, she didn't know what to do, and there was absolutely no education um, you know, in school. She, looked, she knew, just did not know what to do. So the abuse continued for 10 years. Um, you know, in June, we heard about the 14-year-old girl that went missing and um, later horrified to, to, to hear about, you know, three people were charged with child luring, including uh, an older man from New Brunswick. Um, also in June, there was a 51-year-old man charged with luring and making CSAM, which is child sexual abuse material, um, legally known as pornography. Um, there's another case. This one I find incredibly disturbing. This is somebody that I know. Um, a friend reached out and asked if I could make time to talk to um, one of his relatives because their daughter had disclosed being sexually abused. Um, and it, this one was by an older cousin. So the girl was sexually abused from age 7 to 14, and she spoke out in 2021 uh, about the abuse. Finally, uh, you know, she had the courage to come forward and talk about it. And um, there were charges laid, and Patty, then there were an additional 50-plus girls in this small Conception Bay North area that were, uh, I'd also come forward, who were sexually abused by this 23-year-old person. Um, I mean, I met with the mom, and I spent hours with her, and it was heartbreaking because she talked about how all of these young girls were impacted um, when there was, you know, zero education in their school. None of them knew anything about what to do. They weren't trained in body safety, and, uh, you know, and, and that's pretty disturbing. 
Um, I checked the court docket. Um, this was July, and for this, you know, for this particular case. But you know, I was horrified. All ten provincial courts in this province for the month of July had sexual abuse crimes on the docket against children. Sexual abuse crimes against children. And I don't know why there's not a provincial outcry. I mean, I, I find this so upsetting. Uh, and just to further, um, I know there was a CBC News story about um, uh, someone from Victim Services talked about how they have a, a hotspot for human traffic, trafficking in Ontario, and they're seeing the uptake of uh, Newfoundlanders uh, going through this, being trafficked. Um, and I'm not sure if you heard about the movie Sound of Freedom. I have, yeah. And that region in Ontario, that's the Durham region. We actually spoke with someone directly from that area who's formerly from this province about what they're seeing uh, regarding the numbers of children in particular uh, going through that part of Ontario. It's really quite devastating. It, it certainly is. With The Sound of Freedom, um, I went and watched that. For anybody who's, uh, you know, kind of him and hon about it, I mean, I realize it's a disturbing nature. It is about child trafficking. But it was tastefully done and, you know, so informative. Uh, you know, I recommend seeing it. Um, so I just wanted to say, you know, it's been three months. And, um, you know, hearing all these stories and, and you know, teachers reach out to me. And they want they want to, uh, they want to, us to keep lobbying for the education because they they see the need in their classroom. Teachers often tell me that you know they they, they have situations where there are children that are potentially at high risk, but they have no training. They don't know how uh, you know what what to do or and when a child does disclose, they don't know how to rec- react responsibly. Um, you know the, the education is just not there. So I just kind of wanted to highlight the desperate need to get the body safety program in the school. It just continues. It's been three months, and, you know, the stories that I'm hearing, it, um, it, you know, it's just it's keeping me awake at night. I mean, we need this. Bev, the, you know, so the argument has been, well, we'll try it as a pilot and, you know, start with X number of schools, see how it works. It's been test-driven for age appropriateness and all that stuff in other provinces. They also say, you know, we need some training for the teachers and there's a big slate of PD days that can be used for, one of them can certainly be used for this. Then the last point made by the government in defending the decisions they've made here is that there's already curriculum in place that does what this does. So they'll talk about some overlap. Have you done some compare and contrast what this program that you're promoting looks like versus the curriculum that's already in school? Yes, Patty, I have. Thank you for asking. Um, in fact, I met with staff from the Department of Education about two years ago, and um, he enabled, the, the person that I expect, met with enabled me to review, and um, I went back a couple of weeks later for um, a follow-up. And, you know, the, the education that there is incredibly outdated. There's minimal... And he agreed. You know, he agreed that that it wasn't much there. I realized that uh, they have had some, op- um, I'm sorry, some um, upgrades or sort the word I'm looking for. But basically, that it's been modified. However, uh, teachers are telling me what they have a high concentration on in the education system right now is a social emotional learning program. And I mean that is critically important. Social emotional learning teaches children about managing emotions and having empathy. That is. That's a you know wonderful program, but when a child is at risk of being sexually abused, that's not going to protect them. So 
So, uh, you know, um, and, and teachers are telling me, teachers are telling me, I've had somebody from NLESD reach out and say that they're really in support of this program and they don't know what the holdup is. Um, you know, we're at a loss here. Well, we'll keep talking about it. Hopefully it will seep into the consciousness of uh, people who make these types of decisions. I'm off to the news, Bev, but I'll give you the last word. What else would you like to say? Okay, so I just want to say, as long as we continue to do nothing, nothing's going to change. And the longer we wait, Patty, the more victims are going to come forward. Um, Teachers are telling me it is not there. What we need is not there in the curriculum, and we need to get it in there. There's no reason to wait any longer. We already know it's been tried, and it's been successful in every other province and territory, so we just need to get this in there. Appreciate your time, Bev. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. That's Bev Moore-Davis. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we've been talking about a variety of issues that pertain to seniors in particular. We've got a conversation coming up with one of the new representatives at Seniors NL to talk about some of the issues on the top of their mind. And then David, sir, wants to talk about an update on Empire Avenue. We did indeed have the executive director of Choices for Youth, Sheldon Pollard, on the program yesterday talking about that home that David is concerned with. Then Murray and Corey, you stay right there. Same with you, Harold. He wants to talk about food banks. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. The Executive Director at Connections for Seniors is Mohammed Abdallah, and he joins us on line number six. Good morning, Mohammed. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Freddie. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Good. Thanks for having me this morning. Happy to have you on the show. It's nice to meet you digitally and now here on the program. So for the bare bones, what exactly is the mandate at Connections for Seniors? So Connections for Seniors was established in 2018. Um, Myself uh, and uh, my co-founder, we uh, started the organization out of the need for specific programs that are directed for seniors. We saw a lot of other programs that seniors are uh, a file on the side of the desk and we wanted to focus more and support more our um, aging population. Uh, so um, aiming for the well-being of seniors is uh, the core of, of the programs. So um, it's to establish programs and provide support services to older adults in order to ensure growth, health, and well-being. Uh, basically, it's what we aim for. Um, so all our programs are driven from that philosophy. When we talk about health and well-being, let's start with something that many people are struggling with right across the country, and that's housing. When the the shortcomings, and I quoted a number this morning, the country needs to build some 5.8 million homes by 2030 to accommodate what is the forecast of population growth, whether it be through immigration or otherwise. Inside the seniors' world, let's talk about housing and start with affordability. Um, I think, I don't think, I know for a fact that housing is our biggest portfolio. Um, it's uh, it's a big it's a big issue and it's an alarming issue uh, if we don't move fast uh, to and we're not in the phase of being proactive we're on the phase of actually reacting to the aging population and building more affordable housing so people can actually remain in their own homes as long as they want and as long as they can um, we see a big shortage in the market right now and that's of course causing um, a backlog for our shelter system for example uh, a lot of people are losing housing now not because they just um, basically can't afford it. Mortgages are going higher. Our economy is not uh, in its best shape at the, at the time. So when the mortgages go higher, uh, in result, you see uh, rent goes high. 
uh, when a lot of seniors on their basic income or their fixed income, they cannot afford that increase from the time. And they end up being in the shelter system. For sure. Now, the numbers of the number of seniors that own their own home in this province is really quite strong. But as you age and the family moves out and you're the empty nesters, then your housing issues change. So when we use affordable housing as a catch-all, it's really a lot more complicated than that. Seniors would have a different affordable housing need than others possibly, whether it be with accommodations for their age, maybe some mobility concerns and the like. When you talk about the need to move quickly, is it about as simple as building more affordable homes that are targeted to the senior population as they move out of their bigger homes that they no longer need? That, that's one aspect of it, for sure. Um, once, once you get, we have, a, we have a perspective that once we get older, that everything is going to be okay because we have our pension, we have our homes, we own them, but we forget the most important part. Actually, our health starts to deteriorate, so we start to spend a little bit more money on it. Our homes start to deteriorate as, as well, uh, and we need to spend more money. So a lot of seniors we see actually they own their own homes, but they cannot live in it anymore, whether they cannot afford the bills anymore, the heat bills going up, or the roof needs to be changed and they cannot afford it, and it's beyond some of the subsidies that are available out there. Um, and and these, these are things, yes, they need to downsize, and it's not as easy because they cannot find something out there. And this is where we are trying now to come with some solutions. Uh, our our, our uh, organization is now looking into a project uh, in the next couple of years, hopefully uh, to provide 60 affordable units for seniors that they can live. A one-bedroom apartment that we are in a very high need for in our, in our um, uh, province. Uh, most of the homes we have are three bedrooms and four bedrooms, but that's not what is needed uh, as much anymore. So this is something that we are exploring uh, with some uh, developers and partners in the community. Uh, to acquire like a big building and try to convert that into affordable housing so seniors can actually move into that if they want to and they choose to and uh, they have more uh, affordable life uh, as they move forward. So rent should not exceed someone's uh, one third of an income as our national standard. Uh, and we see a lot of seniors spend more than half of their income on their uh, rent uh, expenses. Even if you own your own home as a senior, regardless of the size and the ability to, you know, to take care of it, to do ongoing maintenance, which is part of owning your own home, there's the concept and some of the larger conversation happening across the country is supports required so you can actually stay in your own home, whether it's an affordable home, a smaller home, or the one that you raised your family in. So what sort of work are you folks doing so that people can be accommodated to stay in their own home because even if we look at cost comparisons whatever support i need to be in my own home we're closer to friends closer to family familiar surroundings versus in somewhere like a long-term care facility it costs much more and we're talking about health and well-being it can indeed deteriorate for some seniors if they're in that institutional setting so what type of conversations are you having on that front so and this is actually the biggest philosophy that our organization was established upon. So uh, the social determinant of health is a big conversation now. And I think six years ago, we were talk- we, we, we shaped the way that our program is going to grow. Uh, when we started in 2018, it was two people volunteering to help out. And now we are 35 staff, and most of them are directed to make sure that seniors are uh, aging in place. They get the supports needed in their own homes. Uh, and they live in their own homes as long as they want and as long as they can. Um, so health is a big piece. Uh, going to doctor appointments sometimes uh, is a challenge and a key for deterioration when people cannot go and see their doctor or go for, the, for their medical appointments. So we, we provide transportation on that front. We provide case management. We provide uh, advocacy. Uh, we have seen seniors that 
sometimes cannot articulate exactly uh, their challenges health-wise. And um, one of the stories that I always mention when we first started, uh, we had a senior that uh, was suffering from falling a lot. And when the doctor asked what is going on, uh, he came back saying, I'm okay, I'm just busy sometimes. He said, no, he called the ambulance in the last two weeks more than like six or seven times because he couldn't get up. Uh, after two weeks of admission in the hospital, he was diagnosed with uh, five core challenges. One of them was like he couldn't see with half of his vision. Uh, he, he suffered from Parkinson's and he didn't know. Uh, he suffered from some neurological like uh, a disease that uh, he needed immediate attention for. So that support can actually get somebody to um, stand on their feet back again if it gets catched early. Uh, and that's where we play a role for in the health-wise. Uh, other piece to it is that we support seniors with their financial planning. Uh, sometimes seniors cannot, uh, after turning 65, um, our, their finances change uh, drastically. So the, the, the seek out help sometimes to say, can you help me out? to manage my finances, can I budget differently? How, what can I do in here and there? So we can help out with, with things like that, uh, even as easy as automating some of their expenses, like their rent can go uh, automatically out and so on. These are things that we can assist with. Um, transportation is a big piece. Uh, so it also uh, overlap with the food security. So we do provide sometimes help with grocery shopping if needed. Uh, we would help out uh, with uh, the lower income uh, 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 like uh, socioeconomic like individuals that they cannot afford uh, their food so we can help out with some of the food bank uh, deliveries and that program relies heavily on volunteers uh, that's why we always reach out to say volunteers it makes a lot of difference in that program uh, we we, uh, we we deliver we deliver uh, back in up to back in January over 1200 between meals and food hampers a week uh, in our uh, like northeastern like Avenue Peninsula, uh, right now we expanded to CBS too uh, since last year, and we uh, we try as much as we can to support. But food was a big challenge uh, at some point. You also have emergency accommodations and crisis-based counseling, some nursing services as well. And for folks who want to find out the full suite of programs available at Connections for Seniors, the uh, website address is really quite fundamental. It's connectionsforseniors.ca. Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Mohammed? before we run out of time? Um, uh, I think I think uh, I, I just appreciate the, the platform that you gave me today. And uh, if anybody want to reach out to us, want to volunteer, or ask any questions, we're more than happy to uh, to answer them. Our website, as you mentioned, is something that they can. Uh, we, can we will be responding as soon as possible. Stay in touch. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Thank you, Mohammed. Mohammed Abdallah is the uh, executive director at Connections for Seniors. Let's go to line one. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Thank Murray. You take my call. No problem been a long time. <laughs> I got a few questions for you, Patty, about the Charter of Rights, one of them. Is the Charter of Rights a law or is it just a rule? <laughs> well, the law is, well, they're one and the same, except they're not. They're yeah. just, right? <laughs> That's what I thought. It's kind of hard to answer that very simply. I mean, it's the guiding document that has helped create the laws. How about that? No further aid than I was before. 
Well, I don't think there's a fundamental answer to it, to be honest with you. Like, it enshrines all kinds of rights, but it has to be translated into actual legislation as opposed to simply, if, if the Charter just stood alone, then it doesn't actually itemize laws, penalties, or those types of things. It simply gives you the broad basis with about discrimination, for instance. So that needs to be translated into a law proper as opposed to simply the Charter as a standalone document. Okay, so what I can remember about the Charter, Section 15, Equality Rights, states every man, woman, and child in Canada should be treated equal. Now, here on the southwest coast, Patty, we're not getting treated the same as port of Bess. East of port of Bess, we're, we're, we're being abused, as far as I'm concerned, with, about this money. We're being told nothing, only a pack of lies. Uh... No answer at all. We'll get to you in two weeks. Whatever. And it's this continuing. It's not only me. Like, people are coming to me and saying, Murray, next time you talk to Patty, tell him about my house. Oh, I'm hearing from all kinds of people uh, about their predicament post-Fiona. The, if you're talking about Section 15 in the Charter, the equality issue is very specifically about camping uh, discriminated based on your anathem uh, or ethnic origin, the color of your skin, religion, sex, age, and another couple there. Oh, mental and physical disabilities, I think, is in part of that. So the equality is based on discriminatory issues or discriminatory practices versus the overarching concept as you said that everyone shall be treated equal well I think here we're being discriminated against here east of Port of Bass uh, you know no one account, like we can't get a meeting with anyone I've asked Andrew Parsons to come here have a meeting with us they don't want anything to do with it, as far as I can see what I'm understanding and Mr. Parsons was on with Tim Smith two weeks ago he told Tim Smith he's sick of hearing me on the radio complaining. But as long as someone will take my call, Patty, I will continue to get the truth out what's going on so is coast, and Mr. Parsons can go to shoppers and buy some barf bags or turn off the radio. That's my opinion, you know. I wouldn't encourage turning off the radio, but uh, look, I, I understand your plight, I understand the concern, and it's not just you. I guarantee you I've got at least a half a dozen families via email telling me very similar stories about their inability to get any answers, to meet with anyone, not understanding why their community isn't treated similarly uh, to uh, people and residents of Port of Basque. I put it directly to the minister, and of course then there's some shuffling of priorities or shuffling of responsibility, for instance, into the Department of Justice. And I guess we should have Mr. Hogan, Minister Hogan on sooner or later because there is a lot in his portfolio that is uh, making headlines. And we can put it to Minister Hogan as well as to how labels or distinctions were given to one community versus others. Because, as I've said to you in the past, Fiona didn't know whether her wrath was devastating an area in Port Basque or outside of Port Basque. So those types of fictional boundaries don't make a lot of sense to me. They never have, and I know we've had this conversation in the past, but uh, Dave, let's see if we get Minister Hogan on next week, because this is part of his mandate as well, is this recovery uh, out in the southwest coast. I'm glad I didn't say recovery in Port of Basque. Uh, last word to you, Murray. Go ahead, sir. Uh, well, this housing, Patty, every time I listen to the radio, all, there's a lot of talk about Immigrants all down around St. John, no housing, no no housing for them. Don't know what to do with them. Hearing poor the best, they're taking down 57 modern homes and destroying them. What's that all about? 
Well, you know I can't can't answer that because I have no idea. That's right. No one can. Well, I'm going to find out about the Charter of Rights, Patty. Uh, is it law or is it rule? I, I, I can't pick the sense to it. And if it is only rule, who do you go to about the breach? It is a breach of the Charter of Rights here. Well, I mean, uh, the suggestion would be that if you're talking about your rights not being attended to, then probably the Human Rights Commission is a call that you might want to make. I don't know if they will tackle this or take it on on your behalf. But if you're talking about human rights being discriminated against based on where you live, I don't know if that's in their ballywick, but maybe call them. I can't get all to them. Well, I don't, right. I, I, I don't know what to say about that either. I can't get all to them. Okay. Okay, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem, Murray. Take care. Catch you later. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, the patience of those of you in the queue, we appreciate it. We've also reached out to Cornerbrook Mayor Jim Parsons. When the RNC expands their footprint on the west coast of the island with no additional monies coming other than maybe covering some nuts and bolts like new vehicles, what do the communities that are already being policed by the RNC think about this expansion? Do they have any more details than I have based on the announcement yesterday? We'll speak with Cornbrook Mayor Jim Parsons after this, but we'll get to, uh, I think we'll get to Harold first about food banks, and then we'll speak to the mayor. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Harold, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. I was wondering if, uh, I don't remember, I mean, this other guy was talking about food banks here last week or something. Uh, what was the conversation about specifically? Oh, yes. Yep. So I don't know if you got anywhere with it or buddy, or that you know, older gentleman got anywhere with it. But we, we tried. I did speak with the food bank operator that said that they do their level best to not give out food that would not be healthy. But we all understand the issues surrounding these best before dates. You know, I used to be really terrible for it. If a product in my home was after its best before date, it went in the trash. But now that I understand a bit more about it, now you describe things that were, were certainly off. The food was off. It couldn't be eaten. It wasn't healthy any longer. And so they say they try to do their best to understand the best before dates, but if some of the products, as you described, that were absolutely inedible, that's, you know, when I put that to them, they said, that, well, they don't try to give anybody anything that'll make them sick. That's not what they're there for. They're trying to help, not to hurt. Yeah, I know that, but like I said, it never changed. And uh, like I said, now yesterday, the day before, we got food at the food bank, and they says, hey, when you get the food from the food bank, it's supposed to last a month. But what they're giving you don't last a month. And like, if you get a bag of flour, like down in Newfoundland, you get a bag of flour to make a loaf, uh, make, make bread. But you don't get a bag of flour, you get a small bag of your flour. And then you don't even know how long, that, how long they have that. So, <laughs> you know, that's not enough to make a, a batch of bread. And like I said, the food, like the chicken, uh, we, had a, we had a chicken last time. You know, thought it, it, it was two months old. I know it was frozen, but still, you know, thought chicken, the chicken is the worst. So, I guess, and we got we got uh, food from the food bank again, uh, not yesterday, the day before, and we had uh, like a bottle of sauces, 2022 on it. So you understand what I mean? I, mean? I understand what you, what you mean and what you said, and as I said, I put your concerns directly to someone at the food bank. I told you what they said. Yeah, but like I said, and then uh, like we talked, me and my wife there went and talked to, uh, I was three, like three older two scenes do all the women and and the uh, older gentlemen he got a little bit rude he said well pretty soon we're not going to give it no meats we're not going to give it no this no that no sugar no flour and we're just going to give it canned food so 
like I, I like it. I don't know why why he's getting off to be like doing like that. If the people that donate the foods, the I know I know other people. Uh, one lady I was talking to, they donate food. Uh, they donate food and they donate uh, money and they donate cards, gift cards. I never seen a gift card yet come from the food bank. But they said they, I know this other lady that I was talking to. She donates gift cards. She donates money. But I, I'm, I'm sure when they donate money and donate gift cards. They, they don't donate to uh, like to buy food just out of date to give people. No, they wouldn't. And of course, if you donate a gift card, which is the last donation we made, well, they can stretch it a bit further than I can, or they give it to someone who can buy what they need specifically for them or their family at the grocery store, which would in, would absolutely ensure that it's quality. Because if you get it that day from the grocery store, ninety nine times out of hundred, it's perfectly fine. Yes. You know, you, you like this stuff that you get from uh, food bank, and they got two months, or like even the chips is two months old. Oh, they said we got to give it. Steve Deadly, all the ladies, they said the other day, we got to give it. They said the government said we got to give it. Like I said, my darling, I said I don't want that, that. I don't want. It. She said, Well, you don't want that. You don't want that. I said, No, I don't want it. So when he gives you one bag, yeah. Like, that's not enough for a month. They're trying to help you out, Harold. That's the basics. That's where I'm going to leave it this morning is when people turn to food banks for help, folks who operate and volunteer at and donate to food banks are simply trying to help folks. It might not be ideal. It might not be what you want, but folks are just trying to help you out. Yeah, I know. I wasn't being rude or nothing to them, but I'm just saying, like, if they're going to give stuff to set a date and not fit to eat, then, like, you know, it's not much good, is it? No, I, I guess it isn't. Uh, I appreciate the time, Harold. And again, last word, because I am going to take another call, is they're just trying to help you out. And I'm sure this is a pretty frustrating type of feedback to get, but no one's trying to hurt you or know, give know, you something that's not fit. I know, but I don't think... I, I, so I guess it's not going to be, like, it's not gonna be any different anywhere. Like, I know the food banks out around here, like, all, like uh, same with the centers in beer, as in, well, I'm not going to say, but... Uh, most all of them, there's three, like three food banks around here, and they're all the same. So I don't know. I don't know if anybody's going to do anything about it, to change it, or uh, what. But I don't know. Appreciate the time, Harold. Take care of yourself. All right, thanks, Patty. Have okay. a good day. You too. Bye bye. Will I take the mayor here now, Dave, or take a break? Take the mayor. Okay, great. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the mayor of the city of Cornerbrook. That's Jim Parsons. Mayor Parsons, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? Best kind this morning. How about you? Oh, good. It's Friday. <laughs> Not a day too soon. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the story of law enforcement in the province has changed very quickly. We first were talking about the RCMP vacancies, and it went from that to now a reduction RCMP presence in Fogo. And now the RNC taking over some jurisdiction on the West Coast that was formerly policed by the RCMP, now taking over by the Constab. The complicating factor here is no real additional monies. So what do you know that maybe we do, don't know? Uh, conversations with the province and or the RNC about how we can adequately police more ge more geographical footprint with possibly no real measurable addition of human resources yeah and patty my my first thought was the same thing when you do expand those services where are they going to come from but my understanding is that there is uh, this is essentially there is going to be additional personnel added to uh, to the cornerbrook area um, I think that there's a, a you know cost savings potentially on, on fees paid to the RCMP per perhaps, but that'd be a question for the, for the minister. 
And there, I mean, this is not to criticize for the sake of criticizing, but like when the minister was asked yesterday, no additional money's planned for upcoming budgets for this expansion. They did refer back to the uh, RNC uh, allotment went up a million dollars last year, and they will indeed uh, increase the force by some 10 officers as part of that money. There was talk of additional funding for vehicles and some nuts and bolts stuff. And I guess that's where the devil lies in the details here is how many more RNC officers can be recruited, can be put in place to accommodate this expansion. I was just wondering if you had more details than we do. No, I don't have any inside knowledge on that, but I do understand that there are going to be additional resources coming out of the Cornerbrook office uh, to uh, to uh, to deal with this. Uh, you know, it, I, I don't see it necessarily as a problem as long as the local resources are there. Obviously, we uh, we rely heavily on uh, our RNC here in the city. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it, there's changing needs for that uh, for our police force here. I think it is good that these communities are going to get uh, you know a local stable uh, a police presence, and that uh, you know I'm sure that the RNC could do a great job doing that. Uh, I do have that concern to make sure that we aren't watering down what we do have because we do need the RNC. We do need a, a strong stable presence in our communities. So yeah, it, it is something that overall, if it is a matter of oh, okay, it's coming out of the amount that the province pays for RCMP services and moving into the RNC budget, great. Uh, again, I'm not privy to those specific details, but I do expect and I, I, am, I do understand that it means additional people working here in Cornerbrook. Yeah, let's hope so. And we've just invited the minister a responsible on next week to give us some additional details so that folks in your region, and whether it be Massey Drive or as far east as yeah. Pasadena, so they know what's coming and what to expect. You know, when we sometimes I struggle in how to talk about crime because some people think you're automatically trying to stoke fear or you're sensationalizing a real problem. But we have to talk about it because that's the reality. If Stats Canada says the severe crime index has increased six percent province wide, and in this neck of the woods, nineteen percent. Yeah. What does it feel like? What are you seeing in Cornerbrook and surrounding area? Because I can tell you, in St. John's, it's a different city in the last decade. It, it, you know what? And I, I got to say, Patty, and I'm knocking on wood as I say this. We've been very lucky here uh, on uh, in Cornerbrook uh, and the West Coast generally, and watching closely, of course, from from you and the news, uh, what's going on uh, out in the in St. John's. But uh, and and it is scary. It's not something that we want. But uh, we are a, a very very safe uh, jurisdiction out here, and uh, we want to keep it that way. And I think that to keep it that way requires uh, requires police too. It's not a reactive measure. This is a proactive measures. And, and we've seen leaps and bounds when it comes to uh, improvements in how, uh, you know, mental health services are done from a police perspective. There's not adequate resources, as we all know. Uh, but some of the changes that I've seen, some of the community policing changes that I've seen uh, rolled out through our local offices and that, I think the chief's doing a great job, uh, again, in a very difficult time for policing. And uh, But it is, uh, it is something that we've been fairly lucky uh, and uh, we want to keep it that way. So, uh, again, I don't want to jinx it uh, because uh, uh, we do have a very safe and beautiful environment here, and uh, we want to keep it that way. 100%. Some of the contributing factors here, and there's many, whether it be addictions and mental health, and notably housing. I mean, it's not the only solution available. If everyone has a home or a safe place to live or rest their head, then all these other societal problems go away. But around here, vacancy is about 3%. The homelessness numbers are growing year over year to the point where... 
even the pressures in the urban setting with the offerings of the services that are here in St. John's versus some other smaller communities in the province, we've got a huge problem that is growing every single year. Talk about housing and or homelessness in your community. What do you see? Yeah, we have, uh, again, similar problems, maybe not to the scale you see in St. John's, uh, but it is something we've historically had very low vacancy, uh, down in the, in the, in, you know, the 1.5%, 2% a range, and that's been for quite a while. Uh, we do have a significant uh, you know, population of students. Uh, we have a hospital project going on with a lot of uh, contractors and that taking up housing as well. Um, our, uh, you know, our partners in the area, we're very lucky to have, you know, a Grenville campus and Memorial University uh, and others looking at this issue as well. I've seen uh, a number of studies done on the nature of uh, homelessness and the need for affordable housing in the area. But uh, it is something that's uh, is concerned. I wish there was a clearer path for how we can develop more affordable housing. Um, you know, as a city, we're trying to make sure that there's housing available uh, across the board. And any housing development will free up and, uh, you know, supply demand. We'll, we, we will uh, cr- decrease the cost of housing if we can provide more and different types of housing. So I like to see, again, more apartment development, more smaller housing development, more infill development so we can service people better with transit and things like that. So uh, it is a real concern for a lot of communities. Ours is not immune to that. Um, and uh, we're, we're sort of lucky here that we, we have such a stable economic base here. It's been stable for a very, very long time. We are, you know, with the mill, with our hospital uh, and the upcoming hospital, and, of course, the, uh, uh, the our government services. Cornerbrook's population is very stable. Our, our economics uh, are here are very stable. So we don't see the same, uh, you know, ebb and flow that you might see in an oil-based uh, or a fisheries-based uh, economy. So it's uh, uh, we're lucky in that regard, but it is a concern for sure. And not just for the hope to balance things out, but it's just so easy and important to talk about shortcomings and problems and solutions for said problems. Yeah. But you talk about the economic stability in Cornerbrook, one side of it, and I don't know how many tourists make their way through Cornerbrook this year, but you're pretty yeah. much caught up with the city of St. John's, uh, for instance, with a cruise ship volume, which is yeah. encouraging. So what have you seen throughout the course of the summer? It looks like it's been very busy in this city and some other of the so-called called hotspots for tourism. We're hearing reports of a banner season or a bang-up season. Well, how about your neck of the woods? Yeah, no, it, it continues to grow. And uh, you're right. We do have uh, we do have a very, very rapidly expanding cruise uh, market here. It's great to see people in the downtown. But, Patty, a large part of that is because it is a safe destination. Uh, You know, uh, cruisers want to get, they want to go places where they feel comfortable physically because it's not too warm, of course, but also, uh, you know, it is, it is a very safe, friendly place. Our province is known for that. And here in Cornerbrook is no different. So, uh, you know, it, it, that's a big part of of tourism now. And, uh, and it's a big part of quality of life. It's a big part of what we think is going to make our community sustainable for the long run in terms of attracting newcomers to come work here. Uh, we need people, as we all know, and uh, we need you know, health professionals. We need people with technical skills. We need people to work in every part of our economy and uh, our supporting our tourism sector does a lot toward that as well. So it's a, it's a good sector sport. We're seeing great results. Uh, I've seen lots of ATVs on the road, uh, which, which again has gone very well and very safe as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a great summer, and, uh, you know, we want to continue that and make this place the best place to live that we can. 
And I mean, I love my city, warts and all, and always trying to find ways to improve the lot in life for everybody in the city. And I'm not even going to get you to react to this because it's so silly. But I yeah. often wonder what the province would be like if the capital and all that comes with be, being the capital city was Cornerbrook. I, I know that's just <laughs> complete nonsense, and there is no answer or conversation to be had there because you can't rewrite history. But I often wonder how different the place would be. Uh, well, we did. We're on the we're on the best coast, as we say, and uh, there there are certain benefits, and 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 I can't argue that uh, I having lived in St. John's for a number of years and moving back, you know, I'll take the weather here any day. Well, you actually have seasons. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't hurt. Yeah. If you embrace the weather, winter is great. Appreciate the time, this morning, Mayor. No, I was. I appreciate it, Patty. Have a good one. The same to you. Take good care. Bye bye. Let's go to Brooke Mayor Jim Parsons. Let's take a break. Uh, Corey's in the queue. Had a support animal stolen? We'll find out more about that right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. David, you're on the air. Line number five, David, you're on the air. David, going once. David, going twice. I'm just putting him on hold, Dave. Okay, David Williams. I'm just going to go to Todd. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to uh, Todd Boland from the Munns Botanical Gardens. He's the horticulturist on site. Good morning, Todd. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Had to reach out to somebody who knows obviously much more about it than I do. The reports coming from certain parts of the province about what people are seeing with these intense webs. I'm told it's a a caterpillar tent web or a tent caterpillar web. What do you know? So we have um, here in the province two different types of what are loosely referred to as being tent caterpillars. We have the northern tent caterpillar which is more of a problem, say, in June and July. Um, and then this time of year, it's actually the fall webworm. Uh, but it basically ha- looks basically the same, that the branches of the trees are all covered in webs. And if you look closely, you will see masses of little caterpillars feeding away uh, underneath all those webs. And so this is an, an annual rite of passage? So this is annual, yeah. Both those species are found here. Um, for the most part, they don't do any real serious damage. The, the fall webworm, uh, which would be the ones that are on the go now, they do very little damage. I mean, yes, they do strip the leaves of the trees, but this late in the year, the trees have already set their buds now for next year, so it doesn't have any kind of detrimental effect um, on the affected trees. The ones that come out earlier in the season, July and, and uh, June and July, when they strip the leaves, the trees generally will have a chance to flush out with new leaves again, but that actually does weaken the trees a little bit. So if that happens year after year after year, eventually you can start to see some dead patches starting to develop in the trees and the shrubs. Is the reason why we see it more intense in certain parts of the province versus others, or is it simply the type of vegetation they feed on? Well, they basically feed on hardwoods, right? So they're not, they're not big. They don't feed at all on the spruce and the fir. So here on the Avalon, we don't have a lot of, of deciduous shrub material or deciduous trees like they do in central and western Newfoundland. So we generally don't see it here on the Avalon, but certainly the west coast, um, up around the, uh, the straight shore, as I called it when I was growing up, um, up around Lumsden, that area part of the island, northeast coast, um, there's a lot more deciduous trees, lots of birch, lots of uh, red maple, um, a lot of willow trees, things along those lines. And that's what those 10 caterpillars want to feed on. So anything that's deciduous so uh, like I said so it's very much um, island 
specific, we'll say, for each of those two bugs. I appreciate you giving us some heads up here. So there's nothing really to worry about other than possibly if it's an intense year-over-year concern, possibly. Now, yeah. So, I mean, they're easy enough to control because um, there's a product on the market called BTK, and it's a bacteria that's specific just for the larvae of uh, moths and butterflies. And so you just spray, if you know, if, if this is an ornamental tree in your garden and you have the 10 caterpillars, then just give them a spray with this BTK. That will kill the caterpillars. It will not bother anything else. So it doesn't, it won't affect the bees and things along those lines. They're perfectly fine. It won't harm your pets. Um, it's just very, very specifically just for those caterpillars. Now, we know last year's growing season was extraordinary, and it led to some bizarre uh, happenings this go-around in my backyard. The presence of the maple seedlings was something I've never seen before. I've seen them to a certain extent but every crack in every patio stone in my backyard was absolutely blocked oh, yeah. with it. Yep. What do we need to know about that? Like, can I just whippersnipper them out, which I did in certain yeah, parts because I got I sick of being on my knees? Yeah, once they're cut off, they don't, they don't generally come back, right? So it's not like uh, gout weed, which is the bane of a lot of people's yep. existence, where, you know, you keep cutting it, it keeps coming back even worse. But no, once you, once you clip the tops off of those little maple seedlings, that basically takes care of them for the season. I'm not much of a gardener. don't have a very green thumb. I do listen to you when you do some gardening-related shows, obviously. But with last year's growing season and the temperature and the consistently warm temperatures throughout the course of July, does that change how we have to approach dealing with our pruning or our flowers or our gardens or anything related to the fall, putting things to bed? Because things just took off. Things that I was waiting to see some more growth in June, of course, did not happen. But through the course of July, explodes. So does that change the timeline for taking care of our gardens? Um, Not really. Most I find right now when I look at things, because each each year I keep sort of track of what comes into bloom at what time of the year. And certainly we're way behind in June. My God, we're like two and three weeks behind schedule. But for the most part now, I'd say we've almost caught up. That real nice warm patch that we had there in July, things really, as you mentioned, grew gangbusters. So uh, I would suspect now we're probably about maybe a week behind what we would have been this time last year. So as far as, you know, your regular chores, things like that, be, be doing in your garden, you know, just just keep to the line, you know, just keep doing the regular stuff that you normally would do, um, and everything should be fine. Really appreciate the time this morning. Todd, any uh, helpful tidbits you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye? Um, the only thing to keep in mind now is that, you know, we've, we've been getting regular rain again, which is great. Um, the berry pickers are going to love this because now that bit of rain we've been getting here on the Avalon recently has really plumped up the berries. And uh, a number of people have noticed that it's been a really fantastic year for berries. Both dog berries are spectacular. Blueberries are spectacular. Um, and except we all have last year's growing season to thank for that. Now we don't know what's going to happen next year. <laughs> well, I'll just cross our fingers and hope for the best, I guess. <laughs> Is there anything to the old wives' tale about the prevalence of dog berries and what to expect in the winter? No, nothing at all. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> and I'm really pleased to know that. Uh, it's good to have you on the show, Todd. Thanks for right. this. You're very welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. It's Todd Boland. And if you haven't been to the Botanical Gardens lately, spectacular. It really truly is. All right, let's take a break. We'll see if Dave is here to talk about an update on Empire Avenue after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line five again. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, I just want to update you about what's happening on Empire Avenue. Okay. Before I start, I'd like to thank all the people who work for Choices for Youth and for Newfoundland Constabulary because it's been very hectic here. Now, Mr. Pollitt was on yesterday uh, talking about the partnership uh, that they're into. And this partnership is not working. Um, Yesterday afternoon, one of the residents was escorted here uh, back because she 
inadvertently did something wrong on the metro bus with a I think it was a dog related thing or something. She had a dog that didn't have the right uh, certificate or something. Um, so um, yesterday morning I woke up, I came back, uh, had a police van here with two police officers at 9.30. And then 10.30 I had to call in 911 with an attempted suicide uh, situation. Uh, I sent a, uh email out to Mr. Pollitt and to the chair of this Choices for Youth organization. Um, this morning at 5 o'clock, we had five police vehicles here and an ambulance and a disturbance, uh, drug-related. And just then we had, let me see, seven police vehicles and an ambulance all tied up and choices for youth were here. I think myself included, the neighbors and I are relieved in a way because there is some, uh, I see some things being done. There was a person escorted away, but it has been hell. Uh, I think that there's been 22 police cars here in the last six days. There's been seven ambulances. So if anybody wants to know where the police cars and the ambulances are, well, you know where they are. I'm asking the people from Choices for Youth, not so much the staff, but if you're on the board, you've got a problem. This partnership is not working out very well. Now, this must have been a severe case. I'm not really sure. But like I can tell you, we're not getting any sleep. Uh, we're, our lives are on hold here. This is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. What I would suggest, and I'm not living there, so it's not me telling you what you th- should think or do, because obviously what you describe is untenable, and it sounds uh, very disruptive to your own peace and quiet in your own home. But maybe expand it beyond choices for youth, because when we spoke to Sheldon yesterday, it's not their home, right? Like, they they simply rent a unit from a landlord, which consequently brings along all the complication with the Residential Tenancy Act versus a group home that they would own and manage and operate and be responsible for 24-7 supervision. So this is a different set of circumstances, as described by Mr. Pollitt. Does that say to you that maybe there are more entities you need to bring into the concern beyond choices for youth, beyond the RNC, maybe include the city? because it's a bit more complicated than I first understood when I initially spoke with you. Well, I have uh, emailed um, uh, Sheila uh, O'Leary as well about the situation. And I, the first thing that anybody ever communicated to us that there's there this partnership and this wasn't uh, a group home, but I understand that there's different relationships and everything here. And all we're asking for is neighbors to said, okay, there's a partnership, let's all go because we haven't been included in this partnership. The only partnership that we've been included only tell that there's a problem. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not here to try to say blame or anything else. I just said, you know, there's an awful waste of resources here. Well, I wouldn't say waste of resources. There's an awful lot of resources being used in this situation right now. I, I, I just think there's got to be a better way. This, 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 this is not the right way. This, I, I don't think so. Even the cause for the police to be called and to have to respond, the way I heard it from Choices is that, you know, not everybody in there is someone that they're offering supports to. Not everybody in there is a client, so to speak, of theirs. So do we even know who's causing all the disruption or the bulk of it or what have you? Because is the assertion that it's the one person that's being supported by Choices for Youth that's causing all of this havoc? I won't say, I won't answer that question, but I can tell you that there 
there is an affiliation between them and Choices for Youth. But I, I, I just don't know. I know that the Choices for Youth are supposed to be here. They're supposed to be supervising. And um, I, I just don't think the management of it is, is, is correct. I don't know what it is, but it, it's just not working. And let's hope they can grapple with it to improve the lot in life for you and the other residents of the area. And, of course, when we're talking about people who have, are deeply troubled, trying to figure out the required supports and the supervision and what it means to the community where they live because that's what we deal with there. Group homes will be amongst other non-group homes. Troubled people will be supported by organizations like Choices for Youth with nowhere else to put them. So, And I'm not trying to talk about just warehousing them because that's who they are, what they deserve. People know what I mean. So let's hope that whatever the conversation looks like between Choices and the RNC and the city or whoever else should be involved improves uh, your your life in your community. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, David, before we have to well, go? I just say we look forward to working with the individuals. So I, I wouldn't want anybody to go through this this situation that we've gone through. Um, uh, I thank everybody who helped. I thank everybody who took the time. Uh, but uh, there's got to be a better way. And I just thank you for listening to me on behalf of the neighbors as well. I appreciate the time. Thanks, David. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the break, but Corey and Caller to talk about the road conditions. You stay right there. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Corey. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Betty. Morning I'm too. looking for some information about my service therapy dog. She was taken when I was preoccupied on Water Street, and I got some flyers up, and she's somewhere between the area of Freshwater Road and Elizabeth Avenue. She's a black border collie-ish, about 25 pounds, and she has three white paws and one full white leg. That's pretty dis- distinctive. So, Corey, before we uh, get into uh, trying to help you out here, what do you mean taken? Like someone just, just snatched the dog? Yeah, I, I was preoccupied and somebody took her. Okay, so that's uh, a strange set of circumstances. Does it have any special indications that it is a service dog? I have her papers here, yeah. It's not a service dog. It's a support dog. Okay, sorry. And she's registered... Or therapy for other people, like to visit hospitals or mentals, whatever. Okay, so, so for folks in the area, keep a lookout so we can see if we can reunite you with your support dog. And we have your number here, so if anyone calls and says, okay, we thought the dog was abandoned and tried to help, but consequently not helping at all, they can get in touch with us, and we'll connect you, uh, both of you. There's also a bunch of different Facebook groups uh, regarding lost pets and things that have been stolen. I wouldn't hesitate to put something on there if I was you with a picture of the dog, which is obviously very distinctive looking. Yeah, yeah, I've tried that, and I've tried the SBCA and Humane Services, but I can't, I can't find her. She's been gone about a week now. Okay. Uh, do you use Facebook by chance, Corey? No, I don't, but I, I did get a friend to check it out for me. Okay, so there's a couple of groups there regarding lost pets, and there's one that's called Stolen on the Avalon. So uh, I would ask your friend to post a couple of pictures there. Maybe, just maybe, folks who are always checking in on those pages will be able to help you out, and certainly hope so. I hope so, too, because I really miss her. Okay, describe the dog one more time for people who might not be paying close attention. 
she's like a border, small border collie mix. She's about 25, 30 pounds. She's all black and she has three white paws and one paw is all white. Her name is Molly. Okay. So, folks, keep an eye out. And if you know anything about this dog, please contact us. Dave wants me to put you on hold, though. So you're going to go on hold and speak to David Williams again. Okay, Corey? Okay, thank you. You're Have welcome. a great day. You too, buddy. All the best. All right, Corey's on hold for you there, David. Let's go to line number one. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I know I'm beating a dead horse here, and this subject has brought up a million times on the show. Go ahead. But uh, I want to talk about the conditions of the roads in the, in the province. Uh, just recently, I took a trip uh, away, and uh, there was a time when I used to when I would say that I was proud to be a Newfoundlander, but not anymore because people I spoke to uh, from that weren't from here, uh, I said, "Oh, I'm from Newfoundland," and and they said, "Oh, we were in Newfoundland. Oh my gosh, it's so dirty there." Oh, and the roads, oh my, you know, and I never had any positive comments whatsoever. I only spoke to maybe four or five people, like, uh, on the plane and, and at the hotel and stuff. But, you know, we're getting to the point where people are looking at us as a third-world country or a third-world province because uh, the road conditions are unbelievable. In the last couple of weeks, I had a, two reasons to travel to uh, the Irish Loop. And the conditions were so bad. There were just blobs of asphalt on the road, holes in the road. Uh, I have a brand-new car, and um, the feature, you know, the feature on new cars, if your car should sway either way, you know, it alerts you. If you happen to sway into the other lane, I had to turn that feature off because I I was dodging potholes so much. Uh, I hope uh, the premier and uh, the mayor are listening because uh, it, it's both a provincial and uh, a municipal problem. Um, the uh, you know they seem to be wasting their time looking for names for the pedestrian mall and taking down the, the gate and, and the waterfront, the fence on the waterfront. They really need to to look at the condition of the roads because tourists come here, and you know one of the 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 prime uh, attractions is the Irish Loop. And the Irish Loop, I don't know if you've been down there lately, but it's, it's deplorable. It's terrible. It's absolutely. It's, it's it's bad. And they seem to have this, this thing where they go down and just dump uh, this black asphalt in the holes, and they don't even bother to smooth it out. I mean, uh, you know, and it, it's I can't imagine driving along in the nighttime. I mean, people must be beating their cars up. they got to be. You know, and I live just as uh, just past the village mall. As you enter Goulds, they're along by the Irving and, and uh, Tim Hortons there. And I mean, the roads are unbelievable. I, I you know, it's embarrassing to, to say you're from here. The garbage, again, is another thing. Is just, I don't know. They seem to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in tourism ads and things like that. But when people actually get here, they're mortified. Um, about the conditions here. So I just want to put it out there. I hope somebody on some level of government is listening. You know, you can do all you want to promote tourism, but when the people actually get here, they're they're disgusted. And I'm disgusted. I, I'm tired of it. Well, as I've mentioned in the past, I remember so not that many years ago, just before the pandemic, picked up some friends at the airport, and before we even got to the lights at Newfoundland Drive, they were talking about the, the garbage in the median. And I'm thinking, oh, man, here we go. And they're not wrong. And then I had a buddy here this summer 
summer, they arrived via Marine Atlantic in Argentia, and the very first stretch of road leaving the ferry is beat to you know what. So, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think the government discounts these concerns. This year, they're talking about the unprecedented spend and road work, you know, over a couple of hundred million dollars. But the problem is catching up. There is so much road to be covered and dealt with both here and in Labrador that I don't even, the paving season, I don't even know if we're ever going to catch up and have roads passable. Some roads that are absolutely brutal are on the priority list this year, but that doesn't mean the roads that are not at the very top of the list aren't aren't also absolutely horrific. And it's not just about beating up your vehicle, which is a really terrible thing to happen to anyone. I think it's a public safety issue, boy, to be honest with you. There are some spots where you could absolutely, on quasi-blind turns, just try to sway one way or the other and turning off your new car feature so the bells don't keep going off. But then there's people maybe doing the same sway in the opposite direction coming at you. I just think that the road concern, I don't know how and if we ever catch up, but it is terrible absolutely terrible and right here in the capital city where i live most of the roads that i drive on in my normal course of business they're not very good either i mean down newfoundland drive it, it must look like a patchwork quilt from space it, it's it's disgusting and I, I don't drive a motorcycle but i can't imagine taking my motorcycle on the irish loop or the other roads i mean there's no way you can enjoy a bike ride on roads like that um Pitts Memorial, oh my gosh, they, I use Pitts Memorial to get from, like I said, I just live uh, close to the Village Mall. Often I use Pitts Memorial to get downtown. That's been uh, under construction since like the middle of May or towards the end of May. And, you know, I know they're probably doing their best, but uh, I've passed along there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and there's nobody there working. Um, I don't know what they're up to, but, you know, here it is now, uh, the middle of August. And it's still torn up. And to me, now I'm, I don't know anything about roads, but to me, what they're doing it doesn't seem to be a priority. They're only replacing the, the middle uh, concrete median, the, the, the high median between the lanes. So, and, you know, hauling out the uh, electrical uh, light poles and stuff. Again, I don't know if that, that's priority, but, you know, it seemed fine to me before they, they tore it all up. Um, I don't know, maybe they're putting in new pipe work. I don't know. But... Uh, you know, when you go to other cities, you see them working, you know, holidays, you see them working on Sundays, you see them working at night with the bright floodlights. And But here it seems like 3, 4 o'clock they just knock off and, and <laughs> call it a day. And then I'm not saying that, you know, people should work holidays, and, and but if they're under contract, they should be given a time frame in order to complete it. Um, but that, that's been tore up all summer. I mean, it just seems like the city is just one big tear up. There was a bunch of summers in a row, but it seemed like Portugal Cove was the never-ending uh, paved job. And I've used Pitts Memorial. I, I've only ever used it this summer to go in and out of Costco with my wife. And it is beat. And I don't know about the schedule of uh, how quick it should be done. They're replacing all the lighting and everything, too. So it's a lot of work being done there. But you're right. It's been torn up for quite a long time. It doesn't look like there's been a whole lot of work achieved. But, you know, nor am I a heavy civil yeah. guy. But I understand your concern. And I think you're amongst the majority with road road work concerns even though i know there's lots of road work going on but the problem is ever catching up 
the beginning of Gould's uh, out around Ruby Line, that, that's that been tore up as far back as I can remember. And, you know, they they make allowances for cars to pass. But, you know, if you don't know that the bump is there, those bumps are unbelievable. And I'm sure the paving company or the construction company could make it a little bit better on vehicles. But it's just like they, they tear out a piece of the street and just say, okay, we'll deal with the, the hole that absolutely takes the bottom right out of your car. You know, um, now I don't know if this is true. Uh, I was speaking with one person who was familiar with the contracting. Now, again, I could be completely wrong, but what he told me is that a, a contracting companies will take uh, five or six projects in the city, and then they'll go from one project to another, and uh, they're not given a, a, a time completed. It's done based on money, as opposed to so they they kind of stretch it out. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can see the, the same construction crew five or six different places in the city. They just neglect one, go on to the next, but they just take as many contractors, uh, contracts as they possibly can. And but there is there are time frames associated with contracts. You know, there's a scope of work provided. Now, if something comes up where it's you know unforeseen, it wasn't even part of the tender package, that might give them a bit of wiggle room. But there is no doubt that there is time frames associated with roadwork contracts. Yes, for sure. There, there are time frames, but again, there's a, there's a monetary amount put on it. So what they do is they go out and they they take five contracts, don't have the manpower to do it. So they're spreading their manpower from one construction site to another, and then one construction site gets neglected. Like I said, I've driven along Pitts Memorial, beautiful day, uh, weekday, and you don't see a soul out there. So I use Pitts Memorial pretty much well every other day. So. You know, I don't know what's going on there. I, I wouldn't know exactly what is going on there either. And I've driven it a few times this summer as well. And, yeah, it's, needless to say, it's completely beat up. Uh, I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, and, you know, look, <laughs> the roads aren't great. Tony Power is a truck driver. And, look, I've driven in other parts of the country, and yes, you're going to run into bad roads. I mean, you will. It does seem to me that there are stretches of roads here that are maybe worse than I've experienced in other provinces. I remember not so long ago being in New Brunswick, and their roads are pretty beat. But Tony says, I travel all over North America. Road conditions vary, but we in Newfoundland and Labrador, no worse than other areas in the province. Road conditions are a bad state everywhere, says the fellow who drives those roads. And as I mentioned, I've seen bad roads elsewhere, but it just feels like ours are pretty beat up, and many more stretches of road are in pretty bad shape. Let's take a break. When we come back, Ken's in the queue. He wants to talk about an issue with cod sales, most of which I think is influenced by the crab chaos that got the season six weeks behind. Michael's there to talk about roads as well. Then we're going to talk about wrestling. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number uh, three. Ken, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? Well, it could be better. Uh, Patty, I'm a fisherman out here in Carbonair, and I spoke to you one time last year, too, about uh, plants telling us what day we had to go out, and if we couldn't go that day, well, we lost that week's fishing and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's pretty much the same again this year, too. Uh, this is the third week now into the index or the stewardship fishery. The first week, the buyers never bought one pound of fish from me or some other fishermen do. Not only me, I'm talking after a lot of fishermen here in Harbour Grace and Carbonier area. So <clears throat> the second week, they come and they said the buyer, uh, the buyer that I sell to, is going to take 1,700 pounds. That's only half the quota for the week. We're allowed to land 3,209 pounds, I think it is, per week. So they, they said they'd buy 1,770 pounds from every license holder. 
So, okay, he took that. Uh, we got this, a grade sheet from it yesterday, uh, 60% grade A, 30% grade B, and 10% grade C. Now, last year we invested in uh, some of those blue insulated tubs, and they're supposed to increase the quality of the fish. So what we do, we got them in the boat. When a fish will come aboard, when it's taken the red out of the gillnet, the gills are plucked, it goes in the ice water, slush water, and the cover goes on it. And when it comes in, it's took, lifted with that, that tub and all, it's lifted right at the boat, laid right on the scales. Now, I don't know how much fresher you can get fish or what else can be wrong with the fish. The nits were put out at about 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon and hauled the next morning 6 o'clock. So within the water, 12 or 14 hours, something like that. And <clears throat> when we sell it on the wharf, we don't get the grade on the wharf. It's got to be put in the endure tubs then, and that's endure hands now, the, the processor's hands. They'll, they'll take it, put it in dirt tubs. I don't know where it goes, if one a truck go there and it's going somewhere like that, and you'll get the grade sheet next week sometime. And here you got grade B. So the problem we got is or what we want. Why can't the fish be graded on the wharf in front of us? If we got grade B, then we can take our fish and say, no, you're not getting it. We'll take it home and fill it in our salad or do whatever. There's my fish until they takes it off the scales. True. Excellent point. And, you know, it, it's a quite the luxury to be the person that buys the product and gets to grade it at the same time, as opposed to being done right in front of you, like you rightfully point out on the wharf. And the distance in price between grade A and grade C is, I think, is 92 cents maybe for grade A, all the way down to 20 cents for C, right? That's right. Yeah. Last year, I sold three days. Last $1,400 on three days' uh, landings because they graded it after they got it. So I, 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 bought, I invested in these old tubs there, the insulated tubs, they're new and everything. Then they're supposed to uh, increase the quality of the fish, and I'm using them to what they told me to do. They told me about how much ice to put in, how much water, blah, blah, blah. And we're getting a, a lower grade now since we start using that than we did before. So, I don't know, you can't win, right? And this, like I said, this is the third week gone into the, the stewardship fishery now, and I got half of one week's quota so. Now, we did get a buyer uh, for some fillets, so we had to fill it that ourselves. It's not a good time of the year to be on the water filling fish in this heat. But the people we sold it to, they're phone, uh, coming back looking for more. They're lovely fish, beautiful fish, white and take and all this stuff and uh, but uh, when the plant buys it there's great C and B don't understand it it's look like most things in the fishery and I'm not a professional fish harvester I only know what I know based on what people tell me and things I see and the reading I do but I can't for the life of me understand every single season very similar issues and we talk about it then the season's over and nothing changes then the next season rolls around we talk about the exact same problems it's just mind boggling whether it be the price setting panel and how that operates period and how the product gets graded and the body up and buy catch and all the things that are every single season we talk about them but nothing seems to change i don't know if it's because people in charge don't understand the industry don't know how to change it for the better or if there's the the lobbying pressure brought to bear by the union versus the association for seafood producers or it's the the convoluted approach between the province and the feds i don't know what it is but nothing changes there's only been a couple of positive changes since i've been sitting in this chair one i can think of off the top of my head is last and first out that went away it came out of nowhere and it went away and that was good work for the folks who ensured that 
that happened because that was ridiculous. But other than that, I haven't seen a lot of changes that made it any better for anybody on either side of the fishery. Oh, I lost a lot of money on that issue too. Last in, first out. Yeah, what happened? Well, uh, I never mind to call about this, but this is another story. Uh, yes, I'm, a, I'm fishing offshore on a shrimp trawler too. Uh, that's for full-time employment ever since the moratorium in 92, because I used to fish on the Labrador coast in the summer okay. with the family. Then I, when that collapsed, we went offshore at the shrimp. There was nothing else for us to go out here. So I've been at that for 35 years. Long before any 65-footers went in Area 6, we were there first. We were doing experiments for the government. Uh, it was called an experimental trip. We had uh, observers aboard. We had to go here, make so many toes. Go there, make so many toes. And they were recording everything in Area 6. So we were the pioneers there, but we were drove out of it because the 65-footers wanted to go there. So they cut our quota. We weren't drove out of it completely. They cut our quota. And the cut that we got would have been two full loads of the boat that I'm on, and uh, one trip, one full load of that boat would have given me $20,000. So I lost $40,000 a year right out of the back there. And they were telling me that we're, they were trying to drive the foreigners out. There is no foreigners on the boat. We're all Canadians. And what if, you know, I was in there to the meetings, in the meetings in there to St. John's, and I was one of the persons that got up and spoke to. But whatever done a bit of good, I just lost $40,000 and two days wasted in St. John's. Because they had a panel put there that when I seen the panel, I knew right away what was going to happen. Because there was all the insurance crowd on it anyway. Oh, there. Fair enough. Fisheries, fisheries. I wouldn't trust the fisheries with me goldfish. I got home in the tank on, on the television. I didn't mean to dredge up a bad, a bad memory about life out. And shrimp is confusing for price. I mean, it's one price if it's landed at the plant. It's another price if it's trucked north of Port Saunders. It's another price based on the size. Another price if it's trucked elsewhere on the island. I mean, it's really a dog's breakfast, shrimp. But, uh, but we're not, I'm not talking about shrimp now. That's no, no, no. I, I, under the bridge now. Yeah. But right now, I got a quarter of 3,200 pounds. A fish I'm allowed to land a week, and I can't land it because nobody wants it. Yeah. Nobody won't buy it, and the, they're telling me is because they wants to finish the crab first. Okay, the crab plants here don't process codfish, so if they're busy at the crab, you stay busy at it. But who, whoever is processing the cod, why can't they process? Let me tell you this: I got an app on my phone. I can track every vessel that's around the world, not only here, around the world, and I can tell their name faster, steaming which way they're going, and everything. And there was a Faroese boat came in Bay Roberts last week, came in 9 o'clock at night. The next day, 4.30, she was gone again. They offloaded in Bay Roberts. So I asked the union. I did get hold to the union for that the only time ever I got hold to them. And I said, are you aware of any foreign boats landing here offloading fish? Uh, not any particular boat, but uh, we're not saying they're not. And I said, well, I told them this boat in Bay Roberts. I said, I wonder where that fish is going. They said, well, most likely if it's codfish, it's going to Arnold's Cove. Arnold's Cove processes my fish. So if they're processing a boatload of fish from the Faroese, maybe that's why they can't process mine. Now, I said to the union, why don't you go out there and see where the fish is going and let people know what's going on? No one never came. I called the union this morning. I got, you can look on my phone here on the recent, 20 times I phoned and no answer to nobody. So, I mean, this is pretty frustrating, right? The, the, Usually the, the problem fishermen got is no fish. But, Patty, I'm going to tell you, buddy, you want to see what fish is out here now. One nit, 1,200 pounds. Two nits, well, you, two nits you can almost get your quota. And we're allowed six nits. Uh, n nobody around here has seen the fish like it before. And you can ask anyone. It's unbelievable, the fish. Right in the harbor, everywhere. 
and it's really hard to look at all this fish and you can't sell it. I, I'm sure the, uh, some of the issue is about the six-week tie-up in the crab. I'm sure it is, but fair point. I mean, if you're busy at the crab, say busy at the crab. Uh, Ken, anything else before I get, take a break for the news? Yeah, but okay, the, the, the crabfish have done what they felt they had to do, but I don't have crab, so now I'm suffering for this too. I don't have a crab license. I don't fish crab. Yep. I got to make it on lobsters, cod, or whatever else from squid if it comes or something like that. And last year, like, <clears throat> I'm independent. I don't, nobody, I don't owe no company money for boats or licenses or money. Everything I got is not a lot, but I owned it. And <clears throat> I should be able to go out down there on that wharf and ask any buyer, there's three or four down there, ask anyone to buy me fish. But I can't. I asked the buyer last year, I said, uh, look, I got a bit of fish here. You want to take that out of my hands today? How much crab have you got? I said, well, I don't, I'm not talking about crab. I got codfish. I don't have a crab license. Well, if you got no crab license, we can't buy you fish. Now, what that got to do with anything, I don't know, but no one can answer me. When I said, uh, I called him by name, I said, what did that got to do with uh, I don't have the crab license? We can't get in that discussion here. He said, you'll have to find it somewhere else. Now. Well, I can ask the people uh, involved in making those decisions. It's about time we touch base with Mr. Loader again at the Association of Seafood Producers. Update on the crab season, asking questions like, what does uh, what does the crab license have to do with the ability to sell cod? I can do that. We'll invite him on early next week. We haven't talked to him in a while. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I can tell you something else about him, too. But as I got no proof. I won't even say what I heard on the work, so I'm not even going to say it. Fair enough. Him and and the union and Quinlan's together. Dave Williams wants me to put you on hold, so he's got a question for you or something, Ken, so I'm going to do that, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate your time, too, Hattie. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. All right there, David. Ken is on hold. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's talk a little wrestling. Let's go to line four. Gabriel, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? I'm doing great. I uh, want to take the opportunity, if I can, to uh, promote a wrestling show. Only one today. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to talk about a uh, new plan promotion, Inner City Wrestling, it's called. Um, back, on, back in June, we had a... Uh, our first show in Bonavista. It was a phenomenal event, sellout at Bonavista Cabot Stadium. Uh, the upcoming one is taking place 15 days from now, uh, August 26th at Catamaran Park. Uh, it's going to be called ICW Slam Away Camp. Uh, it's going to be, we have three matches announced uh, already for the show that I'm going to uh, promote at this time. Uh, the first one is featuring one of the greatest new flame wrestlers we have currently in uh, Hellraiser Justin Locke. He's going to face a Nova Scotia native named uh, Ryan Cleary for the first time ever. Um, and we have two championship matches announced. Um, on the Newfoundland side, another Newfoundland versus uh, Nova Scotia match here. Uh, a guy named Violent Vindication, Cameron Stevens. He won a very prestigious championship recently called the Newfoundland Heritage title. He is going to be defending that against a guy named Joey White, very talented performer. What was that guy's nickname? Violent Vindication? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Love it. 
It's a great name as far as I'm concerned. No, I, I like it too. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, one of the first matches that was announced, kind of the, uh, I guess, the, the marquee match, if you will, or the headliner, uh, is... Uh, all is completely Newfoundland wrestlers. Uh, Bulldog Brandon Hines. He is the inaugural ICW champion. Uh, he's going to be defending that title against uh, Jeremiah Javen. Uh, it's a wonderful match, and we also have a lot more appearances from other people, both Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. Like we have guys like uh, Madman Terra Aziz. Uh, Cannonball, Justine Ward, uh, Crybaby, Kobe Christ, and many, many more. <laughs> a lot of good names, I'm telling you. A lot of good names, no question about it. What kind of crowds do you get, Gabriel? Uh, we actually get a, a fairly decent crowd for uh, these shows. Let me mention uh, ICW Emergence last June again. Um, we had a sellout show there at Bonavista Cabot Stadium back then. I think we had a good, I think it was like four or 500 people or something like that. I think, look, it's great. If you're getting the crowds, people are enjoying it, it's all good. Now, in some of the big, larger pro circuits, they'd have like producers on storylines and writers and the whole kit and caboodle. Is that part of what you guys do as well? I would say so, yeah. Like, each uh, in the inner workings of, of Newfoundland wrestling shows, like for the matches, whatever, mm -hmm. like there is a lot of people who produces the actual match and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, on the outside, you got people like me who's doing all the promoting. Um, and we also have people who uh, are very talented in terms not only as wrestlers but as referees timekeepers, ring announcers, the whole works of it. Listen, good on you. Uh, the very yeah. quick uh, dates and times for the one promotion that you're offering this morning. Yes. Uh, now, i got to be a little specific here. Um, the tickets that you can get for ICW Slam Away Camp, uh, if you are a Catamaran Park resident, you can actually get a discounted price for the tickets. You can save yourself $5 on it. Okay. And you you can get those tickets either at the front gate uh, at Catamaran Park, or you can get them on ticketscene.ca. For everybody else who's not a Catamaran Park resident, uh, you can get the tickets again at Ticket Scene, or you can get them at the Badger Irving or at Papa's Sweet Shop in Grand Falls Winter. Uh, and those are going to be $20 per ticket for non-residents. And it's very important that uh, since every single ticket will be uh, scanned at the front gate. If you're a non-resident, it's very important that you label the ticket as non-resident. I appreciate the time. Good luck with it. For performances, I would usually say break a leg, but I won't for a wrestling show. <laughs> no, I, we hope not. I hope not, of <laughs> course. Gabriel, appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. For the wrestling fans out there, let's go to line number five. Michael, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. You? Good boy. I had better days, but uh, this is the reason why I'm calling you. I seem to be trying to get in touch with the government, Department of Transportation, for several weeks now. Uh, I live in CBS. I come off to uh, the bridge there in, uh, by Irving here in Mangles to come up to get to the highway. Eh? You're familiar with where I'm talking about? I am so. Okay. When I get to the top of the bridge, 
and I get almost over the bridge, the ramp, or sorry, the bridge, the steel in the bridge. I'm after calling the government several times to see, come see to it. Nobody's seen to it. This morning, my wife calls me at quarter after six. She got two tires blowed out up on the, on the bridge. So fair enough. It's the bridge, it's the steel. The plow is after hooking into it over the winter. The pavement is all gone off it, and the steel is about two or three inches up out of the pavement. So you're not driving over that when you go up. You're banging into it when you go up. And this is the third tire since this summer come in, Patty, on this same spot. Yeah, someone sent me a picture of it. It looks ridiculous. It's ridiculous, Patty, and I'm that poisoned because I only just put $800 worth of tires on a car like a month and a half ago. Now i got three tires gone out of that four that I just put on and two rims gone out of it. So I'm stacking the tires up. If I blow another tire, I'm bringing them in Confederation Brilliant or in on the darn Premier's office. I've had enough of this. This is crazy. It's neglect. We used to see Department of Transportation trucks driving the highway on a regular basis. Patty, I haven't seen one of them in about a year. You know, you have your drivers go around, you see drivers on the highway. I assume they were looking for, you know, bad spots in the highways or so on and take notes of it, but I haven't seen one of them in a year. And I've called about this now. I'm three or four weeks calling about this, and I can't get in touch with nobody. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, when are we going to have a new election so we can get rid of this? <laughs> Just to speak out loud. But, like, I'm calling out to the government now. Like, attend to this. This is a major problem because somebody's going to get hurt. People are damaged in cars. And, and it's just, so it goes on and on and on. Like, when is it going to get fixed? You know? So this is basically all I'm calling you for is trying to get the word out because we have officials that we have elected to give you phone numbers to call for numbers. But, you know, you, by the time you go through the keypad 25 times or something, you know, press this button, press that button, I hang up because, you you know, you got to call back because it's busy. So... I'm calling you, so hopefully these government officials are listening to your show so they can go attend to this problem. It's a major problem. It's a safety concern as well. Yeah, I've seen the picture. You know, we're not talking potholes here. We're talking an actual obstruction. This is not very nice. My wife works at the hospital. She's she's a health care provider. And it's not nice when she calls me at quarter after six in the morning and saying, you know, I'm up here on the highway, the two tires blow it out. I get to wreck her at 6.30, quarter to 7. So she don't get to work until 11 o'clock in the morning because she don't have a car. Got to get towed and got to get put in. So today it costs another $600 for a tow job and two tires and a rink. So like, how long is this going to go? So I figured I'd voice my concerns with you. Hopefully somebody that's going to see to this after, you know, the whole summer has gone by and nobody's seen to this yet. But like I say, I'm that poisoned with tires. I'll bring them all in, lay them on Confederation building. I can't handle it no more. Michael, I appreciate the time and the concern. Thanks for this. You're, you're welcome, Patty. Thank you very much. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and the week. When we go back, Rob is there to talk about some changes to the license plate in here in the province. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Rob, you're on the air. Happy Friday there, Patty. Yes, sir. Happy Friday to you. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to give a little thought into the, the new plate thing, that they're not getting any stickers out. Doesn't that put a, a, a whole lot of extra force onto the police force? Because they don't know who's registered or who's not. 
or anything like that. It's pretty common elsewhere. I don't know why. I guess it's about money more than anything else because I just re-registered my vehicle and of course I simply have something to put in my glove box, not a sticker for my plate. Uh, and uh, like I said, it is pretty common. They can run your plate lickety-split inside their squad car, but I don't know, but you're right. I mean, there's a dead giveaway if you see the sticker because you don't have to be close enough to see the dates on it. They're different colors. If so if this year is green, I don't know what color is the most recent one, then they can see very quickly just with an eyeballing uh, about whether or not your car is registered. So, yeah, I guess it makes it more complicated. It makes it a lot more complicated, and it makes more force to them because, like, you know, like we've talked about it before, like you see it every day. You know, Buddy was, you know, got caught by the cops no registration no insurance nothing like that so it just puts more of an onus onto the police force to sort of push it on which i don't think is right because our police force is already pushed to the limit as it is yeah i don't know if it creates more work but it does make it more time it would need more time to do what they need to do now to check your plate but like I said, I mean, I've lived places where they had no stickers, and it seems to work. But every single time or every single morning, you can see a news story where someone was pulled over, no insurance, no registration, or suspended license, or whatever the case may be. So I don't think it makes it necessarily any better. No, I don't see it any either. And, you know, the government says it's cost-saving, but it's not cost-saving us because they're still charging us more. And they're taking away those stickers, which I, I assume are fairly costly to have made up. I would think so. You know, so it's, it's just, it's an oxymoron to me that they're saving money, but putting more on the police force because they don't know who's registered or not. And they don't have the time to really pull over somebody, okay, their plates aren't registered. You know, at least when you had the sticker, they could see, okay, it was 19, you know, 23 or 2023. You know, they could see that, okay, they have paid for it. You know, they can see that. Yes, they can run the plate, but that just takes time time out from, from their fare. Now, they would only generally ever notice it if they were either directly or a car or two behind to be able to see the license plate. So I imagine they're only going to run as many plates as they would have eyeballed in the past, but you're right. I mean, as simple as recognizing, and it's just the color. The color is all they had to see, had needed to know, is that if you had this color, then you probably were registered for this particular year, even though we all have floating dates for re-registration. But this will just mean they have to use a computer as opposed to simply eyeballing stuff. But again, they'd only be eyeballing as many plates as they would now be putting into their computer system to check. Yeah, But I understand yeah, your point. It, it does make it different and probably a little bit more complicated than it once was, sure. Yeah, and, and you know, us as consumers, not, we're not getting no rebate from it. You know, like, they, you, know, you know, what it is, $5 or $10 a, a tag or whatever like that. Um, they don't take that off us. I just registered a trailer that I made, and it still cost me the full amount, but I got no tag. So... You know, it's just, it's, it's an oxymoron. The government says they're trying to help us out. Yeah, maybe the uh, RNC themselves can, you know, I don't know if they're going to be willing or wanting to criticize the move, but just, you know, how that 
changes their approach to ensuring that a vehicle is registered. We know what they're doing, whether or not they think it's a good idea or a bad idea, or were they ever consulted in the first place. You know, yes. we're, we're scheduled to have uh, hopefully Minister Hogan on next week, which maybe he can offer his, his thoughts on that. We're hoping to get someone from the RNC Association. I know that Mike Summers was on this morning with Jerry Lynn. Hopefully he can make time for us next year. And uh, oh, this is a quick one from Aaron, who's talking about this topic. He says, in other jurisdictions, police have automatic plate readers that scan a video feed around the plates of every vehicle the camera sees. There you go. Maybe that's technology we've adopted here. And if so, then that does really remove all the complication because the camera doesn't need the cop to add any inputs. The camera sees the plate, the camera runs the plate, and consequently there'd be, a, I guess, a red flag or whatever the right word is on their computer screen. So apparently that's how it works elsewhere. That's the tech question we need answered. If we have that, then Bob's your uncle. Yep. Fair enough. And I, I just wanted to throw that out there because it just frustrates me. I appreciate but, the time. Um, um, but I just like to, I know I was on last Friday too, but um, Happy Kids are out in Brigus at the Blueberry Festival this weekend. It's going to be a full on show. Go, Jill, and, and go, Kathy. <laughs> go get them. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks for this, Rob. Thanks, Patty. Okay, buddy. All the best. Bye bye. Right. Let's get through a couple before we get to the end of the show. Line number two, Stu, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad, sir. Uh, I'm just listening to that guy who had his had his car damaged uh, due to uh, bad roads. Yeah. That's an all-too-common thing here in Newfoundland, everywhere for that matter, but not as bad as there in Newfoundland. I have case law that puts the, uh, uh, puts the uh, liability on to the Crown or government, if you want, government, Crown, same thing. And if anybody would like it, I suggest strongly that they file a claim in the courts, take them in there, and get paid for the damages on your vehicle. So I can leave my number there, Patty, uh, 695-5644. So, again, if you damage your vehicle traveling our highways, the Crown is liable. And believe it at that. And good luck with it. And uh, you have a great weekend, Patty. You too, Stu. Thanks for this. Take care, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, does the missing e-bike want to consume the last couple of minutes here, David? Uh, if he wants to come back on. David was there, he's lost or someone stole or he's missing his e-bike. The business about liability. You know, the, the wiggle room or the loopholes that got different levels of government will use are clear. They'll say that if they're told that there's an obstruction or a particularly dangerous pothole or that metal strip that's raised out in that access road in manuals, when they have a heads up, there's a time frame they allow themselves before they assume any liability. It's pretty convenient stuff. I don't know if anyone's been successful with going to whether it be the city where you live or the town where you live, whoever's responsible for the upkeep of the roads where you live and drive, or the province on the highways and byways. I don't know if anyone's been successful in getting any liability assumed or acknowledged by the government and the bill for repair paid for by the government. If, it ha if you have been lucky on that front, you can tell us the tale. But, I mean, there's even stories about snow plows tearing up personal property, you know, ripping the front off your lawn and or damages to your fence and all those types of things. It becomes a pretty arduous task to get coverage for something that you had nothing to do with. You don't own the plow. You weren't blasting the snow and the ice at the fence. You didn't rip the front off my lawn. And so, yeah, I mean, those things and liability, it's very much a cross your fingers, hope for the best. But I don't think people have much luck with it. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box for the last time. And Aaron, that's a, that's a very helpful piece of uh, information there. If the camera in the squad car 
every license plate it sees it does the work on behalf of the officer then there's no inputs there's no nothing there's no need to eyeball anything there will be a, a direct report right there on their computer screen which is a feature in every squad car and they'll know and away we go so i would imagine if we've done away with the sticker then we're also going to uh have the technology required he sent another link there this is the about an automatic license plate reader that they are incorporating in ontario okay the email address again i'm going to try to navigate through all of the emails requesting the disability benefits links I've got a, probably another 50 to go. If you don't get a reply from me today, you will early next week because I got a, an appointment that I've got to get to when I leave here this morning. So I'm going to dig into another dozen or so before I leave, but I will reply to those requests for disability benefit links and information. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy week. And talk Monday. Bye-bye.